Hello and welcome to Shoot the Breeze, where we take a nostalgic look at a random football magazine from the past. I'm Andy Smith, aka Scott's Footy Cards on Twitter, and with me is Tom Brogan. Hello. In each episode, we'll invite a special guest to join us in trawling through the magazine and discuss anything contained within it. This could be anything from an article, to a photograph, to a competition, to an advert. Basically, if it's in it, then we'll talk about it. So sit back and let's shoot the breeze. Wriggles clear. Might just get the chip and he does, he's scored! Oh, what a great Uh, and this week we're joined by BBC Newcastle's Nick Barnes. Thanks for coming on, Nick. No pleasure. Brilliant. Yes, thank you for joining us tonight, Nick. Great to have you on. Um, I've only one question. Um, my copy of Match hasn't got the free Panini stickers <laughs> with it. Yeah, we can, we can, I can, I can sort of print out some Panini stickers in the same manner if you want. <laughs> so this week we're looking at a copy of Match Magazine from Saturday, February 3rd, 1990. Uh, first thing I had to ask, Nick, were you a regular purchaser of Match or Shoot in the day? Yes, yes, I always did buy one or the other. Um, going right back to when I was a, a teenager and young boy, I mean, I, you know, just adored football and anything like shoot predominantly then before match came along. And then of course, after that came 442, the sort of more, if you like, upmarket football magazine, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, but shoot. And I think the one abiding memory I always had of shoot when I was a young boy was there at the start of the season, the cards for the, the table. So yeah. you could move your team up and down the league table through the season and inevitably after about three weeks it all got you lost half the teams and it all got battered and, yeah. you know you started with lots of promise and it didn't ever fulfill that but um you always look forward to that you know that addition at the start of the season for those bits and bobs that came with it mm. I've, I've said about the the league ladders before that it, for me it was a bit like Sabutio and it was all about the setup all about the start but when you started going with it I didn't really enjoy get into Sabuto that much, but with, you're right about the 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 tabs. They they would they would break off. I remember my mum hoovering them up, you know, yeah. so if they're on the floor, <laughs> or they they go under the the skirting board and things, like that, and they'd be gone forever. Uh, so, you know, I've 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 got absolute respect for people who managed to do it all the way through the season. That was dedication, but I wasn't. Well, that I, I'd love to know if there's anybody who's actually managed to keep a whole set. <laughs> of all the teams in every league mm. in immaculate condition. It's like as a child waiting, you know, collecting the SO, those little figures yeah. that used to be, uh, when you went to get petrol, you know, you always urged your parents to go and buy more petrol so you could get one of the SO figures for the World Cup or the coins. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, if anybody's got sets of those or even got one of those, I've never seen them in years. And um, those are the sort of things that you sort of, collect eagerly as a kid and then as you get older you lose them and that's and then now you regret mm -hmm. they've gone by the by and you've never seen them again do you want me do you want me to go get them <laughs> I, 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 you probably have got them haven't you, you yeah, yeah, yeah. Got <laughs> i've also got some quite a few mint unused uh league ladders with the 
the the tabs and things like that as well. Not not that I've kept. I've I've collected them yeah. again um, over the years because there's no way that there's me and my three brothers and the sister. There's no way those would have stayed in mint condition growing up. Brilliant. All right. So let's look at the, the magazine. So we've got the front cover. We've got Tony Adams uh, and a classic uh, Arsenal kit. Uh, we've got Newcastle exclusive poster. Uh, as Nick has said, Panini stickers free with this issue, but they are missing. What I will, sorry, but I'll just because I've got the original magazine here, and I don't know if you can see there the hole. Oh, brilliant hole mm. in it. So yeah, uh, we got Francis is back. The story behind Trevor's move, exclusive, pages two and three. Who will win the World Cup? So it's a World Cup year, and uh, to be featured on the World Cup. And, and we always mention the cover price, which in this edition is fifty pence. Well, 50p, yeah. but I mean, extraordinarily, it also says Singapore, mm-hmm. $2.75. Um, I mean, what a random country to put on the front cover <laughs> yeah. of that, an English magazine. So anything that, you, anything that you say there about that front cover, I suppose it's just, it's really just Tony Adams. It's filling it, filling it out there and the JVC-sponsored Arsenal. The, the date, to enough, it's, I was thinking back 1990, I was thinking, you know, where was I, what was I doing in 1990? And it was... Um, I was working at Radio Cumbria then, and, and a year or two later, I started covering Carlisle United. But I used to go up to watch Carlisle, um, you know, every Saturday at Brunton Park. Yeah. Uh, and I would have been watching Carlisle at that time, and you know, that era. Um, and wasn't 1990, was that the year that Arsenal won the championship without losing a game, or was it the year before? But certainly that time, you know, it's only been a couple of years since, you know, that Remarkable two 0 win at Anfield yeah, that night to yeah. clinch the title. Yeah, so yeah, so Liverpool won it in nineteen ninety, and then Arsenal won nineteen ninety one. Right, that's it. Yeah, of course, nineteen ninety. Yeah, that's right. It was the last time Liverpool had yeah. won it until yeah this year. Until now, okay. So we go into the magazine then, pages two and three. So pages two and three, we've got Trevor Francis uh, and a Sheffield Wednesday kit. Why I joined. Big Ron, the Francis turns down old club for Wednesday. So uh, Trevor Francis uh, knocked back Birmingham City to join Sheffield Wednesday. So Birmingham City were only in the third division at the time. Uh, made me, they made me a very sound financial offer, and had they not been in the third division, I may well have rejoined them. But uh, instead, he's joined Ron Atkinson at Sheffield Wednesday, uh, a club, of course, he went on to, he went on to manage as well. There's also a wee list there of uh, Trevor Francis's transfers and the cost. Mm. Birmingham to Forest, February 79, of course, £1 million, famously. And then 81, September 81, Forest to Man City, again a £1 million. Uh, July 82, Man City to Sampdoria, another £1 million. May 86, Sampdoria to Atalanta. Uh, so his value's gone down a wee bit, 100000 <laughs> And then August 87, Atalanta to Rangers. 75,000, then Rangers to QPR in March 88 on a free January 1990 QPR to Sheffield Wednesday on a free. It's like an old par, it's got a remarkable devaluation, isn't it? Mm -hmm. To go from a million to drop down to a free in the space of four years, six years or whatever. I mean, extraordinary. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, even 75,000 would be a sort of nominal fee really for Rangers at at that time. Yeah, any thoughts on the Trevor Francis as, as a player? I, I, it's funny because I'm from Exeter originally, and and, and um, Trevor's from Plymouth, so there was always this sort of slightly uh, anti-Trevor um, 
vein running through my body. But actually, um, I've met Trevor since in the last few years because he's now he's a he's been doing quite a lot of pundit work um, and couldn't meet a nicer guy. Uh, really down to earth. I remember sitting in the press room at Sunderland and having you know a long conversation with him before for a game. Um, and it, it just struck me as what a smashing blokey he was. I've got a big friend at work who's a Nottingham Forest fan. And when I mentioned it to him, he said, oh, yeah, they think nothing you know, but good of him. You know, very, very highly thought of. And um, everybody you speak to about him, there's just nothing but good to say about him. Um, and of course, you know, he was a man of his time because the million pound tag was always going to be I think maybe a bit of a, a burden around him, but yeah. you know, to score that goal he did in the European Cup final, and um, you know, he, he he made a he made a name for himself, and to this day now, you know, you can mention his name, and people will know who he is, and I think you know that that's the mark of a player in in, in a lot of ways that um, you remember for the good things, and and yeah. you know, he was remembered for that. Absolutely, yeah, it's, it's nice nice to hear that everybody's kind of warm. Memories uh, of him. Well, re- recently we had uh, Ali Beg on as well, and he he talked about working with Trevor as a as a pundit, and absolutely everything that you've just said as well. He's just his uh, his knowledge is huge. He says that you know it's a great being a producer with him because he can he can just run off with something for a couple of minutes while you're thinking about where to go next. And I've 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 always liked him as a as a a pundit as well as a comment, you know, a commentator in, of the game. Um, I think it's quite easy to to dislike commentators. I, I find, or not not so much commentators, but the pundits. I, I find that people can find it quite easy. So it's quite unusual when you find one where people don't necessarily have bad words to say about him. I think Trevor's one of those. He is, and he's never lost that sort of soft of Devon Burr either. So he's got a very, he's quite softly spoken. Yeah. Um, but it, 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 the way he speaks, I think, draws you in as well. And you're right about the, you know, his stories of football. I mean, he could talk as he did with me that day. You know, he could talk and talk and talk. Um, but he's he's very unassuming in lots of ways and um, very modest. But it, but but that comes across. You know, when you listen to him, that that definitely comes across. So just having a wee look at his, his Sheffield Wednesday. Uh, career, he made 29 starts and 47 substitute appearances for Sheffield Wednesday. In the 91-92 season, he made no starts in the league and 20 appearances from the from the bench, uh, which is interesting. Obviously, that was him. I don't, I don't know if he was player manager uh, at that at that point, but certainly it was him winding down his winding down mm. his career. Yeah. I guess yeah. knowing what his uh, what his limitations were, his, his legs at that at that time. Uh, all right, so we move over the over the page then. So uh, this is who will win the World Cup. So this is an exclusive look into the future. So here, match look at some of the some of the first round games for the World Cup, and they predict some of the results. So if we have a wee look at uh, the, some of the results that match have predicted and see what actually what actually came true. Um, and what the actual what the actual scores were. But but before we do it, yeah. that, Tom, I just want it's a strange concept for two pages of the magazine. It's basically, I mean, the, the, I, you'll probably talk through it, but they build up the the computer algorithms and stuff that are involved in this. But it's essentially doing a dry run through of 
the league of of the the competition, and it's like I don't know if you remember. Certainly in Scoop, do you remember Scoop magazine? They used to yes. have this um, this big mainframe computer that used to do the inter inter British Isles um, league or something like that. It was all like Manchester versus Glasgow. And it was the same concept, and it's like who actually followed that and took an interest in it. Is I, I I don't you know I couldn't really even when some of the results here I couldn't really get excited about them because they're just not real. But well, I think at the time back in back in 1990, I know the the, the beginning was sort of low key because I mean hindsight's a great art, isn't it? And nobody foresaw what England were going to do and mm. and how it was all going to pan out emotionally as well as sort of the way it happened physically on the pitch but back then we didn't have sport on the television 24 7 yeah so i think there was this there was this voracious appetite for the magazines for ladybird used to bring out a world cup book every year um which you sort of uh, dutifully filled out as you went through the competition but you don't that, that doesn't happen anymore yeah. because there's no yeah. there's no market for that because everything is online and everything's there for you at your fingertips but back i think in the in the you know in the 80s and 90s before that you know the world cups on television were something extraordinarily special you know you you you, you them happening in the summer when you weren't at school meant you could watch them um and they just had and i think as well often talk about this in you know radio and television terms um, you know, the very fact that the technology meant that the commentators were using reporter phones or whatever that made them sound like mm. they were in yeah. South America mm-hmm. or Italy or wherever. So you felt that, you know, that bring, brought a bit of romance to it as well. It felt like a foreign competition. Um, and, and all these, this double page spread of predictions, you know, as a, as a teenager or as a football fan, You'd lap it up because you you know about every single country because you'd read up on all of them mm. in anticipation of watching the World Cup in the summer. No, it's a it's a, it's a great point. Maybe I'm just coming at it from a, a modern view rather than what a eighteen year old me would have thought at the time. So that's that's a good point. So yeah, just a review look at it then. So it says um, the relative strengths of each squad have been assessed, and the computer was fed with even the finest details, right down to the bookmaker's odds. A random element was programmed into account for short results, and each match has been played out over the full 90 minutes, with allowances made for extra time and penalty shootouts in the final phase matches. It's the result of years of work and research, and it's exclusive to match. Don't miss out as the drama unfolds. Make sure of your copy every week. Uh, so this looks at just the first, uh, the first, each team's first two games, in the group stage. Uh, so let's have a wee look, first of all, then, at what match you predicted then in Group A. So uh, it even goes so far, not just to suggest who scored the goals, but the minutes that the goals were scored in as well. Uh, obviously, the computer spitting out all the fine details. Uh, so Group A, they've got uh, Italy 3, Austria 1, uh, USA 0, Czechoslovakia 4, Italy 5, USA 1, and Austria 2, Czechoslovakia 2. And if we look at the actual games, it was Italy 1, Austria 0, United States 1, Czechoslovakia 5, Italy 1, United States 0, and Austria 0, Czechoslovakia 1. So, not a great success rate then. Yeah, no. 
Uh, you know, I was, I was, I was before all that. I was about to say, yeah, they've underestimated the US. They've under, well, they, they actually didn't, did they? Really? Certainly, what lost two games, didn't they? Five one and one nil. So Group B. So they obviously they certainly get the opening, the opening game, uh, the World Cup wrong. So they said Argentina three. Cameroon won, but they, they had Cameroon taking a shot lead mm. after six minutes. But of course, that match finished Argentina nil, Cameroon won, uh, and then the, the USSR won, Romania won, uh, and that actually turned out to be USSR nil, Romania two. Uh, then they had Argentina won, USSR two, uh, and that was uh, Argentina two, uh, Russia nil, and they had Cameroon nil, Romania two. And that actually finished Cameroon two, Romania one. So they didn't they didn't reckon in the the Cameroonians uh, mm. that World Cup. Not many people did. So I don't think many people did. Not many people did. And they were actually, you know, looking back now, they were very unlucky against England, and, yeah. and they could easily have it could easily have been Cameroon who went through and not England. So I think you're absolutely right. I mean, they were almost they they were the sort of the, the team that, that that surprised everybody. I mean, there's often one team that does that. And, yeah. Cameroon did that. I think, you know, as well, I think back in those days, you tended to get um, the weaker teams did often tend to get heavily beaten. Unlike now, I think you, you took the way the games developed and the, you know, the tactics and the, the progression of all the countries have managed to, you know, really come on leaps and bounds. So you didn't get teams that got whipped like you sometimes used to find, you know, back in the sort of 80s and 90s. And also, you remember, you know, there was some, Romania were a strong team yeah. back then as well. You know, some of the players that the Romanians had and, and the USSR, you know, the, the, by its, you know, it, it's the Soviet Union. It was, it was a strong, strong nation. So, you know, the whole dynamics changed since then. So Group C, so it predicts uh, a, a, a cracker of a first game in Group C. Uh, Brazil 4, Sweden 3 is the, is the prediction. And uh, actually turned out to be Brazil 2, Sweden 1. Uh, and then, of course, uh, they get this one catastrophically wrong. Uh, Costa Rica 0, Scotland 2, with Morris Johnson and Ali McCoy scoring. Uh, I'd love to say, yeah, that was the correct result, but it absolutely wasn't. Uh, Costa Rica beat Scotland 1-0 uh, in that, um, their opening game. Uh, Brazil 4, Costa Rica 0 match predict. And it was actually Brazil 1, Costa Rica 0. And for Sweden against Scotland, they predicted Sweden 2, Scotland 0. And it was actually Sweden 1, Scotland 2. So they don't do too well in Group C no. with the predictions. Uh, so Group D, we've got the United Arab Emirates there. Uh, United Arab Emirates 1, Colombia 2. And it actually turned out to be a 2-0 Colombia win. That wasn't too bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we've got West Germany 1, Yugoslavia 0. It turned out to be West Germany 4, Yugoslavia 1. Uh, then we've got Yugoslavia 0, Colombia 5. Uh, and that was actually Yugoslavia 1, Colombia 0. was the actual <laughs> score uh, of that game. And they had West Germany 3, Emirates 1. And it was actually West Germany 5, Emirates 1. It's not, it's not easy, is it? <laughs> it's, uh, it's, no. Yeah. I mean, it's an absolute lottery, isn't it? It's yeah. like in a lot of ways. I mean, computer or not, to try and work out when you've got real no real guide to go on. When you're talking, yeah. you know, you're trying to ask, you're trying to guess this in February, and the competition's not yeah. played till June, July. Yeah, as I said, you wouldn't know the squads or anything. No, um, at that time. So uh, Group E, 
We've got, they've got Belgium 2, South Korea 0. And um, it was Belgium 2, South Korea 0. Yes, there we go. <laughs> and they've got uh, Uruguay 0, Spain 1. Uh, and it finished Uruguay 0, Spain 0. And uh, Belgium 2, Uruguay 0. And it was actually Belgium 3, Uruguay 1. And they've got South Korea 1, Spain 2. And it finished South Korea 1, Spain 3. So they didn't do too badly for Group E. Mm-hmm. And then getting into Group F, which was England and the Republic of Ireland, they've got England 2, Republic of Ireland 1, and it was actually 1-all, but they do get the scorers right. They suggest Lineker would score both England goals and Kevin Sheedy would get Ireland's, and that that was correct. Uh, They were the right scorers. Uh, Holland 4, Egypt 0, suggest match, uh, and it was Holland 1, Egypt 1. And they say England 2, Holland 3, and it was actually a nil-nil draw. And uh, Republic of Ireland four, Egypt one, and it was actually a nil-nil draw. So yeah, it was a very cagey group. I remember group yes. uh, group F. Uh, it's just sort of slow start for England, wasn't it? I mean, that was in the competition overall. It just exploded, exploded with the um, free kick against Belgium, didn't it? That was the, yeah. Well, it suddenly blew up. Yeah. That was right in the last minute extra time. Yeah. I was just I was just gonna say there that Holland result was just incredible, wasn't it, for Egypt to draw one each mm. with Holland. But you know, the Netherlands historically slow starters as well in these competitions, or they will just self destruct amongst themselves as well. Well so. I think that was very much the case, wasn't it? Because yeah. of the individuals within Dan Bastons and Bullets yeah. and everyone, their personalities were so strong. When they played together well, they played together well. But when they were, you know, when their sort of personalities took over, mm-hmm. they did have that self-destruct button. So, anything else we want to see about who will win the World Cup? Well, I, I should have really looked out the the next stages of yeah. this. Should have. Um, <laughs> so, I'll, I'll do that as homework, and I'll present that e- that evidence to. See yeah, because yeah, imagine this goes on for at least three weeks. <laughs> yeah, not easily. Yeah, it's an easy way to fill the pages, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. So we turn the turn the pages over then to pages uh, six and seven. So we've got D-Day drama. So this is looking at a few of the the derby matches that were coming up that weekend. So the one we'll we'll pick out for for, for you, Nick. There is it looks at uh, Sunderland against uh, Newcastle. Mm. Uh, and so first of all, it says last time out, and it looks at the last time the two teams played. Uh, so it says Sunderland and Newcastle clash at Roker Park with both clubs in genuine contention for the promotion playoffs. And actually the game was played at St. James's Park when I looked it up. Uh, the last meeting in September was a goalless draw in which Paul Bracewell recorded an out-of-this-world 10 in our match ratings and he could be the match winner in front of the Rokerites' own supporters. Newcastle will be seeking to lift themselves over their Geordie rivals and could conceivably move into third place. And uh, it gives the details of the last time they played, September 24th, 1989. It was Sunderland 0, Newcastle United 0. Uh, and it lifts, lifts the teams there. A, te- a 10 is unheard of in, in these match ratings. Uh, so that, that is some outstanding result, that, for, for Mr. Because, you see, now um, in the Sunderland lineup, Bennett, Gary Bennett is my, my partner, my summariser yeah. right. at Sunderland now. I'll be uh, I'll be reminding him about this one. Well, there's a little bit with Gary weekend. A little bit with Gary Bennett later on. I was was going to pick out uh, as well. So I was going to ask you about about working with him. And it's John Anderson. You see, John Anderson is not in that Newcastle team. He's in later in the magazine. He's in the team 
photographed, and he's still our Newcastle sunrise. I worked with John for five seasons. Right. And so no, no, know him well as well. See that the other derby mentioned here is Port Vale Stoke when Port Vale were a force in English football. Yeah. <laughs> I, I love the picture of um, George Berry down the front there and um, down the yeah. bottom. It's like it's just unusual. I just associate him with his big af- the big afro. Yeah, just, yeah. To see yeah. his hair so short like that is, is very unusual. But I was just going to comment on the Newcastle team. It's a couple of times this person, this guy's tripped me up, um, was Brazil. And it was Gary Brazil, wasn't it? Yes. And so, yeah. you know, whenever I see it, I think, did Alan Brazil play for Newcastle? He didn't play no. for Newcastle. And no. then I remember about Gary Brazil, who was, I think he made mostly substitute appearances when he, when he came in. Because they did have a Brazilian in Mirandinha. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. We're going to get to him as well. There's a wee, a wee picture of him in that uh, Newcastle pages as well uh, so just looking I've looked up the result of that game Sunday Sunday, February 4th 1990 it was Newcastle 1 Sunderland 1 uh, let's see the game was actually at St James's Park and it was Ma- uh, Marco uh, Gabbiadini put Sunderland mm-hmm. in front and Mark McGee equalised in 77 minutes with an attendance of 31,665 Jim Smith was Newcastle manager well Dennis Smith was the Sunderland boss uh, and I'll just rattle through the teams on that day so Newcastle were uh, John Burridge, Dan Bradshaw, Mark Stimson, Roy Aitken, Kevin Scott, Bjorn Christensen, John Gallagher, Kevin Dillon, Mickey Quinn, Mark McGee, Paul Sweeney, and the used substitutes were John Anderson and Kevin Brock. Sunderland, it was Tony Norman in goal, John Kay, Paul Hardiman, Ruben Agbula, John McPhail, Gary Ors, Paul Bracewell, Gordon Armstrong, Eric Gates, Marco Gabbiadini and Brian Atkinson, and the used substitute was Tony Cullen. Of course, they met then in the playoffs, and um, yeah, infamously, you know, when Swindon beat Sunderland in the, uh, the yeah. final and got promotion only to get thrown out. Yeah, well, again, well, we may as well talk about that just now. I've got that for later on, so uh, yeah, just looking that up. So, um, Swindon beat Sunderland in the playoff, got promotion, but then they got done for illegal payments, I think, mm. and then it was Sunderland that were going up, but Newcastle protested about that because Newcastle had finished third and they said that they should have went up uh, instead of the beaten playoff finalists so they didn't didn't do them particularly well over the over the years in going up that, that time <laughs> soon came back down again yeah so anything else you want to say about these uh, about the, the derby matches You've got Liverpool and Everton there um, as picture from the FA Cup final um, so look last time out Everton won Liverpool 3 and uh, this time on February the 3rd, 1990, Liverpool beat Everton 2-1. The, Man- the Manchester United, Man City derby, they are 5-1. That's a- see Manchester City then, you know, when Man United with the with the force, if you like. Yeah, yeah, I remember, I remember that being a remarkable uh, result, that. All right, and on over on the right-hand side there, there's a wee uh, fanzine fun. So, uh, obviously, this is a regular feature in match there. They're looking at uh, fanzines. More terrace humour on our weekly extracts from the football fanzines. This week, extracts from Bernard, the alternative football comic, the voice of Bradford City supporters. Did you get fanzines, Nick, or did you write for fanzines? No, no, not so much. I mean, I know they were all starting to come onto the the scene when I, as as I say, that this time, 1990, I was in Carlisle. There were a couple of Carlisle fanzines, pamphlets, if you like, um, which occasionally uh, I did stuff for. And it's interesting because in a lot of these cases, um, 
the people that started the fanzines very often went on with the jobs in the media. You know, they, they went, they became journalists. And certainly I know um, one of the Carlisle fanzines, um, the, the guy who wrote one of them certainly became a sort of stalwart on the Cumberland News and Evening News and Star in Carlisle and a well-respected journalist. And that, that was often you know, the case. And I think it was uh, even now at Sunderland, uh, the Sunderland Echoes, Sunderland main chief writer, Phil Smith, started out writing articles for Love Supreme, one of the Sunderland fanzines. But of course, now the fanzines have become, it's become more online, isn't it? And, yeah. You know, not many now are actually printed um, and sold as they were back then and in the numbers that they were sold. So yes, yeah, so this one looks at um, the Bradford City fanzine, uh, Bernard. So um, I don't have too much to say about the wee bits and pieces. They've, they've, done, they've done a wee kind of fun uh, sort of focus feature. Uh, on the fanzine. Andy, have you anything to say about that? No, I mean, I, I, I lived in Bradford for 11 years or something like that, and Bernard wasn't anything that I recognised uh, from Bradford City as as a character or anything like that. I did send this on to the, the Bradford boys um, on Twitter earlier on today or yesterday. But um, yeah, it was. it's not one that I'm familiar with. I was about to say, it probably only means anything to anybody who lived in Bradford when you came out with, I lived there for 11 years. Yeah. And you yeah. say, I didn't know anything about it. <laughs> so, turning the page then. So, we've got um, Match the Magazine with New Ideas. So that feature will come to you in a minute. But So, we're going to look at the Make It a Date section. So, this is a, a diary of all the important happenings and rumours. So, if we just have a wee look through say, some of these... Uh, there's a few interesting uh, tidbits uh, through this. So we've got Monday, January 15th. Manchester United accept Brian Clough's apologies over comments he made about the situation at Old Trafford. So uh, not um, unusual for Brian Clough to be saying something. But uh, yeah, so as we'll go on to find out, Manchester United weren't doing too well at mm -hmm. that time. Spurs fans threatened to boycott games following the non-appearance of any members of their playing staff at their Supporters Club Player of the Year dinner. Uh, Wednesday, January 17th, Coventry's David Speedy and Gary Bennett of Sunderland are sent off in the Littlewoods Cup quarter well, final. It seems just a small it's just a small paragraph in Match magazine. Now, the number of people that come up to Benno and I, and Benno especially, and say they were stood within 10 feet of him that day that they watched David Speedy and Gary Bennett go hammer and tong at each <laughs> other as they fell into the clock stand. Uh, he'd be a millionaire because you just couldn't get that many people into Roker Park. But it is still, to this day, absolutely legendary. Um, people still talk about David Speedy and Gary Bennett. Um, and they don't they don't get on. They didn't get on that night. They still don't get on. But a couple of seasons ago when Sunderland were at Chelsea, David Speedy was the guest at half-time and bravely walked round the pitch in front of the Sunderland fans. I mean, the abuse he got. You know, I, I, even after all those years, was just phenomenal. Um, it was a remarkable instant. It's available on YouTube. It's worth watching. They continue to fight down the tunnel. Um, and as I say, it's it's gone down in folklore on Wearside. Uh, well, I looked such up... a small paragraph <laughs> doesn't tell the whole story. Yeah. So I, I looked up both Gary Bennett and David Speedy were sent off eight times across their career. Obviously had porn. For it, I, I, I imagine that, that um, Gary Bennett's a little bit calmer in the commentary box than he was. He's, in the... He uh, he gets worked up. He does get um, 
he gets involved in the game, if you like. He's one of those classic, he kicks every ball and lives the game. I mean, going back to sendings off, I mean, yes, I mean, he, 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 he was... Um, he wasn't an aggressive player, but he was a very strong player, and he wouldn't take any nonsense. He was very athletic in that sense. I, in fact, one of the I saw him getting sent off in an FA Cup game against Tottenham at Roker Park when, for some bizarre reason, he just stuck his hand up in the penalty area and punched the ball away um, within the first 15 minutes or something of the cup tie. Sunderland went on to lose four 0 I think. But yeah, he 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 had a, he was a he was a hard man. There was no question but I think some of that came from the fact that you know he was one of the first black players in the northeast um to to play regularly for Sunderland or Newcastle um and you know the derby matches the some of the racial abuse that he and um a couple of the others got with you know you you awkward it now you wouldn't you mm. find it absolutely extraordinary so I think he you know he had a very you know he's born on Moss Side he was brought up in Manchester in Moss Side he, he, you know he certainly um, he wasn't someone you'd muck with, you know. He, he could he could handle himself. Yeah. He still can actually. <laughs> uh, so uh, another wee bit there on Wednesday, January seventeenth. Uh, Brian Clough spends the day negotiating with Leicester the transfer of Gary McAllister as a Forest boss attempts to make his second signing within two days. Uh, Thursday, January eighteenth, Gary McAllister says no to a one point two million pound transfer to Nottingham Forest. The highly rated midfielder says he will stay at Leicester for the remaining months of his contract. Uh, and he did uh, join in Leeds United in July 1990. And there's a wee bit about Gary McAllister over the page as well, which we'll get to about that transfer. Friday, January 19th, papers report that Celtic are poised to swoop for Everton's unsettled star, Tony Cotty. Uh, and also, as we were talking about earlier, it is revealed that Swindon may face relegation from Division 2 if allegations of illegal payments to players are proved. Uh, and as I said earlier, they did uh, beat Sunderland 1-0 in the playoff final, but they were charged with 36 breaches of Football League regulations, 35 of which related to illegal payments made to players between 1985 and 1989. And they were originally actually demoted to the third division, yeah. but um, then appealed and then they just got their... Uh, One of the great shames of it all, though, at that time was Glenn Hoddle was the manager and he actually had them playing some fantastic football. Yeah. I, so I think it, that was actually. I think was that not Lou McCarry's? Lou McCarry maybe left. Did I think he might have left? Didn't Glenn Hoddle take over? And he he was manager of the team that went yeah. into the first division. Yeah, As, if memory serves me right, I mean, he was connected at some point around. Yeah, there. And I, I think I, he was in charge when they were. Demoted, I, I, want, I want to say that that was a second promotion where they, where they actually did get up into the Premier. Because I think that was when Hoddle left to go to Chelsea just after, and then John Gorman took over Swindon. Possibly I want to say that. Swindon only been in the first division once, haven't they? Is that the top? Yeah, yeah. Off the top of my head, but then it was a long time ago. Yeah, we can we can look it up. But that was <laughs> yeah, that was just just like I say, just off the top of my head. That was what I was thinking. But uh, yeah, so uh, so Swindon launched a high court appeal against the Football League's double demotion, claiming it to be harsh, oppressive, and disproportionate to previous penalties. Uh, so they got kept in the second division. Uh, and Tranmere Rovers, who thought they were going up, did get told that they weren't. Uh, so they were they were staying in the third division. Which is ironic, isn't it? Because historically now, last season, they were um, felt very hard done by in getting relegated back down to League Two because of the abandonment of the season because of COVID. Right. Feeling that their form was such that had the season gone on, they would have probably stayed up 
and and there's a there's a strong case for that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, history shows that Tranmere Rovers have tended to be um, kicked in the backside, kicked in the stomach a few times by the looks of things. Uh, moving on there, uh, Saturday, January 20th, more than 46,000 fans packed Highbury and a further 10,000 are locked out for the North London derby between Arsenal and Spurs. The Gunners win 1-0. Yeah, and that was a kind of phenomenon, obviously, in, in those years before sort of all ticketed matches with fans getting locked out, people turning up for games and not getting in. It's not the kind of thing that happens now, obviously, with ticketed games. Uh, Sunday, January 21st, Manchester United go down 2-0 to Norwich. It's their 10th league game without a win, their worst run since 1971-72, and plunges them into the thick of the relegation battle. So, r- remarkable uh, how Alex Ferguson stayed in a job, really, when you, when you look at it like that. I, like, well, they always say it was one game away, wasn't it? Was, that, was it the cut tie with Nottingham Forest? Forest yeah, yeah. These days you'd absolutely get bagged for that kind of runner. Mm. Form. Uh, Monday, January 22nd, only 12 out of 31 invited England players turn up for a get-together at Lillishaw. Uh, and Bobby Robson states that he will not choose Neil Webb for England's World Cup squad unless the midfielder proves beyond doubt that he's fit. So, uh, Nick, did you meet Bobby Robson in your time covering? Yes, I, I, um, when I covered Newcastle, he was the manager for four years, uh, my five years there. I, when I arrived at Newcastle, Rude Hullet had just got, literally just got the job. And that obviously didn't work out. The famous derby match when he dropped Alan Shearer and Duncan Ferguson to the bench. Mm-hmm. Sunderland beat Newcastle in biblical weather, two-one. And then um, and Bobby came in. And his first game was at Chelsea. They lost. But his first home game was at St James's Park against Sheffield Wednesday, and they won eight-nil. And in my four years, we never looked back. He, he, he met, one of the best signings he made actually was one of the first he made was Kevin Gallagher from Blackburn, who you know was just an experienced midfielder, came in and he started to rebuild the team. And my last season there was when they got through the into the um, second group stages of the Champions League. So um, and, and Bobby was a character, there's no doubt. I mean, we could sit here all evening just talking about Bobby Robson, let alone uh, anything else. I mean, he, he was extraordinary and. Um, you know, still remembered now very, very fondly. Yeah. He was a grumpy old git, mind. He, you know, he wasn't, wasn't, it wasn't all a bed of roses. <laughs> uh, and there we've got uh, Nottingham Forest pull out of the chase for Rangers, £750,000 rated star Derek Ferguson. Uh, Tuesday, January 23rd, papers report that AC Milan's Marco Van Basten is poised to sign a new contract with his club, which will be worth £38,000 per week. This will make him the second highest paid footballer in the world behind Maradona when I read that one I just it took my breath away that back in 1990 somebody was getting paid nearly £40,000 a yeah. week yeah yeah Wednesday January it's actually Wednesday January 24th although match says 25th uh, government abandons plans to bring in the football league identity card scheme Monaco's Glenn Hoddle is told the injury to his left knee is rare and serious Dave Mackay puts his entire Birmingham City squad on the transfer list. I love, I love, I love actions like that. That's just like he's had enough, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. What was the manager that marched all the players out? Was it um, into the middle of the pitch at half time and made them sit in the centre circle? Oh yes, with Phil Brown at Hull. Phil yeah, Brown, that's yeah. right. Phil yeah. Brown. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There was the other one. Um, I think we spoke about it before, where he he, he took them down the pits. I can't remember okay. if it was that Clough. It wasn't Clough. Clough. That may have been, yeah. Was it? 
But yeah, yeah. Uh, show, show them how real people work. Uh, Steve Livingston scores four of Coventry's five goals against Sunderland to give his side a place in the last four of the Little Woods Cup. Holders Forest also go through courtesy of a 3-2 minute Spurs. And Leeds land Stoke skipper Chris Kamara for £150,000. What became of Chris Kamara? Mm. <laughs> he started, he, 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 was, um, he was in the Navy before he played football, wasn't he? I think that's, that's, was what, that's why he signed for Plymouth, for Portsmouth. I think wow. because he was in that area. Yeah, so he, he was a sailor. I think, I'm not sure if it was, sub, I don't think it was a submarine. I think it was just boats. But yeah, he was definitely in the in the Navy. Uh, anybody else pick anything out of that section? Well, it's just that speedy and Benno one that just stood out straight away. I saw that. And it's just, it's just so funny how it's little things like that. You, you know, in match, it's just another small paragraph. But in <laughs> on Weir's side, it was huge. Massive. It was a double-page spread. In fact, it's probably four-page spread. So, <laughs> what well, was it? Was a bad blood before this incident? No, or no. Was, was it no? But I mean, then? from what Benno says about speed, he said he was just anno- He was annoying. Mm. He was an, an an annoyance on the pitch. So I think he's one of those players, and there are that you know every team has one that just winds the opposition up. Mm. And I think Speedy was one of those. You know, he was small. He was chippy, yeah. and I think he he just been at. Benno through the game, and that was the final straw when they collided and crashed into the into the stand. Hmm. He does look it. I have to give him David Speedy does look as though he would be nagging it. You know, just nipping yeah. away, nipping away, yeah. nipping away, chipping away, chipping yeah. away. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Sunderland have got Chris Maguire now, who's similar. He just loves winding the fans up. You know, the opposition up. And the home fans, obviously, they love it. If, it's, yeah. if he's your player, yeah. you think yeah. it's fantastic. But if you're the opposition and the opposition fans, you can see why they get so wound up. So that gamesmanship is still still alive and kicking. Mm. So across the page there, we've got a match the magazine with new ideas. So match looks at uh, a typical weekend and assess the talent on show at the first division. So they look at who was homegrown. So homegrown are soccer's best buy. So they assessed all 260 players on show on the weekend of the 20th and 21st January. And uh, some of their findings were, their big takeaway is that uh, Liverpool that weekend had no homegrown players in their team. Uh, And they say 58 players from the 260 were former apprentices or associate schoolboys at their current clubs. 162 players were transfer buys. And 28 players were bought in from other leagues. And the other leagues obviously includes uh, Scotland. That's interesting. I, I wonder what it would, a representative survey would be this mm. you know, coming weekend of who was homegrown and who was brought in from other leagues. Interesting. I think in the Premier League, I think I, I, as a sort of stab in the dark, I'd say that most Premier League clubs have got one or two homegrown players in their starting 11s. But, um, and I think, you know, the lower down the leagues you go, probably more because they're having to rely more and more now on homegrown players. Um, you know, certainly in the lowest, you know, if you take League Two, I mean, my club Exeter is one that is it, it basically, it's, it's lifeblood is bringing players through to sell on. Yeah. You know, they survive by, I mean, they're talking this last week or two, it was, you know, Ollie Watkins was their bar, you know, their sell two years ago. 
to Brentford and they, they're going to reap three and a half million pounds now from his move to Aston Villa and Purdue the other year to Chelsea. But that's how Exeter have developed their sort of business model is to invest in their academy, make sure you bring through at least one that you can sell every year. They've just sold a 17-year-old to Aston Villa. Um, you know, and that is that that means Exeter will survive another season. Yeah. And that's that's how they're doing. It. And that's how I think a lot of the other lower league clubs now um, are going to have to do. They're going to have to go down that road. I mean, it makes sense. It makes sense that in, you know, so often you see clubs and the owners and that are reaching for the moon, you know, and, and you end up, they, they may get there, but it's a it's a long drop over the next three or four seasons as soon as they drop yeah. out wherever they're reaching. So, yeah, I absolutely applaud that sort of, you know, the realistic approach and the long-term view as well. But also I think it's interesting now when we talk about these young players, how many players in the Premier League, in Premier League clubs have come through that particular club's academy. They will have players in, in their teams that have come through another yeah. Premier League or Championships academy. So, it, it, you know, the, the, that system works to a degree. I mean, it's certainly, if you, you know, all those players in the Premier League, if they're not foreign, if they're English, Scottish, Welsh players, odds on they've come through a, an academy at a, a football club. Yeah. All right. Um, anything else you want to say about that or we turn the, turn the page over? I'm just going to comment on Gordon Cowan's. So there's a photograph of Gordon Cowan's and I'm assuming that must be the shorts he's wearing. So he's wearing... The Aston Villa home kit, but the mm. shorts look as though they, they probably belong to an away kit because they're black. <laughs> they're dark, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so just a bit unusual with that. Yeah, I think there's a couple of photos from that game. I think there's a picture of Paul McGrath, um, who's wearing the same strip. Was it, I, I'm sure we'll see it, but was this, could we see the other team from the photo? No, I don't well? think so. I don't think you can work out why they're wearing the, mm. the, the black shorts. Okay. Yeah, all right. Okay, oh, there we so... go. It was against Forrest. <laughs> <laughs> Just on that page. Oh, yes, with David Platt. Can't, yeah, you can see he's wearing black shorts, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, so two pages here. So there's an advert there for the Match 1990 Football Yearbook. And then below that, we've got a couple of phone-in games, which we've came across <laughs> a few times uh, before. Uh, and this, can you win the FA Cup? Go straight to Wembley and find out, 0898. Uh, and then this penalty. Your chance to experience a penalty shootout with your favourite teams and rivals. Again, another 0898, Colin. And here's your chance to be England manager, 0898. So, so Nick, what, one of the strangest ones we saw, and it may have been along, it may have been with these as well. One of the options that you could take was to take a throw-in. <laughs> so I, mean, I just thought, who, who would phone up on a premium yeah, rate I, and say, I'm, I'm going to take a throw-in? You see, there were a lot of phone lines around that time, wasn't there? Wasn't there... Wasn't there um... It's what they were, whatever the forerunner of BT was, had that you you could phone for the latest score or a match report. You phoned in and there was a recorded mm. uh, match update and then half time, then a, then second half update and then full time. And, it, and you, you, your rates would be like this at the bottom of the page. I can't remember what the service was called, but I certainly know when I was in the press box at Carlisle and things, there, there was someone you know, that was their job on a Saturday afternoon was to do that phone line. Yeah. updates and people were paid to get the latest score because the, the, you didn't have Twitter then and you didn't have social media. Mm. So the only way you get the score was either listening to the radio or phoning the phone lines. 
Would that have been part of the club call, or was that a different club call? Yeah, yeah. club call. Yeah. yeah, club call. That's it. So and the other side thing... made them a lot of money. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> and the other side there, we've got inside story, and it's Gary Snubs Clough. Uh, so this is Gary McAllister's decision to reject a £1.2 million move to Nottingham Forest has sparked rumours he feared similar treatment to John Sheridan. The 25-year-old midfielder has been a priority target for Brian Clough, who has so far failed to fill the boots vacated by Neil Webb. But McAllister, who was poised to move from Centre Division Leicester on three separate occasions, finally told Clough, forget it, whatever the price. I'm staying put at Filbert Street and will see out the remaining months of my contract. Gary had been close to making a move throughout January, but refused to comment on stories about Sheridan. And the former Leeds player endured a nightmare spell under Clough lasting 100 days and was finally rescued by Ron Atkinson at Sheffield Wednesday. I was close to joining Forrest on two previous occasions, but in the end, certain things arose and I decided not to. They made a very good offer and I'm grateful for that and their interest, but my decision is absolutely final. I shall not be going to Forrest now or in the future. So uh, just doing a wee bit of digging into exactly what had happened, uh, the story goes that um, Gary McAllister turned up to a meeting with, with Clough and he was wearing cowboy boots and <laughs> Clough had reportedly said to him, who do you think you are, young man, bloody John Wayne? Uh, <laughs> he then went on to ask a series of questions about McAllister's private life uh, during a meeting which uh, McAllister later described as pretty bizarre. Uh, and he said to 442 in 2016, McAllister said, it was bad timing. Looking back, I'd have loved to play under Clough and his pomp, but I had options and just felt Leeds were a better fit. Uh, Brian wasn't impressed when I said I was going to Leeds. Yeah. So, yeah. I take it you've read Duncan Hamilton's book on... I have read that book. It's a great book, yeah. Which is interesting because Martin O'Neill, when he was Sunderland manager, dissed that book big time. Mm-hmm. He, he, he said a lot of it was made up and... Lot it wasn't true, and he, he wasn't a big fan. Um, so it's difficult to know. I mean, I, I mean, I think Duncan, we're the first to admit, yes, some of it has been sort of elaborated, and other bits probably weren't um, as reliable as you, you you trust when you read the book. But as a as a book, it was a brilliant book. Yeah, yeah. And and then obviously the the, the film, consequently of Brian Clough and yeah, the Damn United Taylor, yeah, the Damn United, very good. But um, Fascinating, absolutely fascinating. But also, just looking at that page, interesting how now John Sheridan, who's mentioned in that yeah. McAllister article, has now just got the Wigan job. And there's that picture of Steve Agnew at the bottom. Now is Bobby Robson uh, is um, Steve Bruce's assistant at, at oh. Newcastle. Oh, okay. Played at Sunderland for for a while as well. Mm. I'm guessing. I'm guessing Brian Clough probably took that snub from um, Gary McAllister quite, you know, to heart. He, he didn't he, he didn't come across as the sort of person who would just go, right, okay, move on. He probably would have had a wee bit of a a thing against Gary McAllister after that. Mm. I mean, yes, I mean, I think, I mean, Martin O'Neill used to say that Brian didn't like him. He didn't like Martin O'Neill because mm. he was bright and went to university. Yeah. And always sort of singled him out for that. And he was always, you know, Brian always sort of picked on Martin O'Neill in the dressing room as a consequence. Mm-hmm. But he also knew he was a good player, so he wasn't going to cut his nose off to spite his face. Yeah. But he was certainly, you know, I think he, you know, Martin O'Neill will tell you, made it quite clear that he wasn't one of his favourites. Mm, interesting. 
And how was Martin O'Neill to work with? Is a Sunderland? Right. Brilliant. Um, it was a great raconteur. I mean, you know, some of the best, I mean, we would often, after a, a press conference previewing a match, he would often sit for an hour talking. I mean, some of his stories were just, just fantastic. I mean, you, know, you can imagine how many he's got to tell, but you know, he's, he's very, very funny. Mm-hmm. Um, he was also, you know, he, 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 I think it's well known, he, he loves um, the law and he, he went, mm-hmm. he, he would tell us how he went to the Yorkshire River yeah, trials yeah. and he's been, he's been to, uh, he remembers going to try and find the site where one victim of another murderer was buried. He, he went to Peter Sutcliffe's house and stood outside and, I mean, absolutely fascinating sort of guy in terms of, you know, his interests outside of football. His music knowledge is fantastic as well. I mean, he'll talk for hours about music. Um, absolutely fascinating guy. Um, and, you know, he was very, very good to deal with as a manager. Just a shame. It, it just didn't work out for him at Sunderland. It just, you know, he, he just hit the buffers there. Yeah, obviously he's a guy who's well liked up here. Certainly amongst the Celtic support, Celtic support still revere him. Uh, oh, I, I can understand why. Understand why. And were you covering Sunderland when Paolo Di Canio was? Yes, <laughs> he was different. I assume. Um, that's one word. He was. Um, do we use the word maverick? <laughs> he was certainly. Uh, he was a. He was a whirlwind. <laughs> I mean, he, you, you, you could sit down and you'd spend 45 minutes to an hour uh, doing the, the preview match um, press conference and you'd be exhausted after 20 minutes. <laughs> you couldn't, I'd, I'd be sat there waiting for my colleagues on the local papers to ask their questions. And you would, after that 20 minutes, you were ready for sleep. You were just absolutely wiped out by it. But you couldn't actually nod off because he kept on turning to you for affirmation of everything he was telling the journalists. <laughs> so he'd look at you as though, and you expected you just to go nod or so. So you couldn't go sit. So after 45 minutes to an hour, you were wiped out. <laughs> but you had to go back to the office then and listen back through carefully what he'd said, because his accent was so thick. You couldn't really, that's part of it why it was so tiring, because you couldn't really take in what he was telling you. Right. Um, so you had to listen through it all again to try and interpret it. But... Um, he, he, what I mean, whilst he's portrayed as being a bit of, um, you know, eccentric and a bit mad, I mean, he, in, in essence, you know, he had some good ideas. He was very much into fitness. He, you know, he set the team up well. And, um, you know, you could see that if he wasn't so highly strung, then he probably could have been more successful as a manager. But I think, you know, someone said to me about Gus Poyet when he uh, took the job at Sunderland as well. There is a there is something in the Latin American temperament, which means that they are very flamboyant in their emotions, and, and sometimes that emotional side is something that English teams couldn't deal with. English players couldn't deal with it, um, and it, you know, in the end, it came out with Gus Poyet as well. He, he I think, became too over emotional, and that cost him his job right. in, in the end. In, in the same way that it cost Paolo Di Canio his job, um, but to deal with both of them were fine. I mean, Gus Point was far easier to deal with than Di Canio, but certainly Di Canio wasn't. I remember there's a story about, there was a student from Edinburgh who was making a film about Paolo Di Canio, and uh, he was interviewing a lot of the uh, 
the characters around the, the, the training ground and connected with the club and the local journalists. But he wanted an interview with Paolo himself, and that was the one thing he, he hadn't been able to get. So he decided to wait outside the hotel in Sunderland on the seafront where Paolo was staying with his coaching staff. And um, when they arrived back late one night, because, I mean, he, he was a workaholic, Paolo Di Canio. He'd be in at seven in the morning and he wouldn't finish till 11 at night. So he gets back to the hotel at 11 at night with his coaches. And this young lad from Edinburgh approached them and said, oh, I'm, I'm Mr. Di Canio, I'm sorry to interrupt you and your friends. And Di Canio just turned round in flamboyant Italian in, 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 in his style years. He went, these, these are not my friends. These are not my friends. These are merely my colleagues. <laughs> and, and strode into the hotel. He never got his interview. But I think famously at Swindon, he sacked his first team coach and then had to reinstate him a week later because the guy he was trying to bring in behind decided not to take the job. Mm-hmm. So there's a, there was always a strange dynamic and relationship between him and his, his coaching staff. I'm guessing, though, that anybody who was staff with him probably must have known that in advance and accepted oh, it. Oh, uh, yes. Yeah. I mean, they were Italians, and I think they knew... They just knew him. I think they knew his moods. <laughs> yeah. I think they just they just, uh, just resigned themselves to it. But he obviously sort of engendered some sort of loyalty. Mm-hmm. The very fact they stayed so long. Yeah. Is there anything else was spotted there in that on the grapevine section? Oh, yeah. So, so Crystal Palace, Ian Wright... So it says Crystal Palace will soften the blow of losing Ian Wright for six weeks by signing Norwich transfer listed striker Malcolm Allen. Um, Once Wright recovers from a broken foot, expect him to move to Everton in exchange for Tony Cotty and a cash adjustment. Now I'm guessing at this point in time it would have been Ian Wright and cash for Tony Cotty and not Tony Cotty and cash. Tony Cotty and cash for Ian Wright. Although you know, give it a couple of years, and that's probably what what the the deal would have been. So I think I think it's, it's an interesting little insight at that point that he not quite, um, you know, broke through into this. I mean, it didn't take him long, but he was a late starter, wasn't he, Ian Wright? And I don't think it really took him long to 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 work his way up. But um, it's obvious from this point that you know the the make way is Ian Wright rather than the other way about. Yeah, interesting. Mm. We want to move on then yeah, on the okay. page. So a, a nice wee spread here with a Paul Trevelyan drawing of uh, Mick Harford. <laughs> and uh, so it's Mick Harford talking about how he idolised Kevin Keegan, copying Kevin, it's called. Hitman Mick Harford may have just completed a £480,000 transfer to Derby, but it's a far cry from the diminutive youngster who used to idolise pint-sized Kevin Keegan for his fight against the big men. It's interesting because Mick Harford's um, fondly thought of on Weir's side because he's from Sunderland. And um, there were many that hoped when he was, because he's now he director of football at Luton, isn't he? Right. And there are many who would, would love to see him come to Sunderland, um, especially with the success he had as sort of scouting for, for Luton in their promotion season the other year and, um, and what they've achieved in the last couple of years. Um, and still comes regularly to Sunderland, and we often see Mick at, at, at Sunderland games in the in the south when they're playing in the south. Um, Gary Bennett still keeps in touch with him, knows him well. So I mean, hard man, but you know, talking about hard men in football, Mick Arthur was a yeah, no nonsense as well, wasn't he? Yeah, I think that draw those drawings just illustrate it, don't they? I mean, just look at that; it's etched on his face, isn't it? Yeah. 
Just looking at that, John. There's a sort of rogue leg. Yeah, I was noticing that. Yeah, it's coming in from the yeah. So we 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 do talk about Paul Trevelyan quite a bit on here, and actually recently found out something else. So he's got so many strings to his bow. He he used to be the world speed kissing champion. Really? Um, he, yeah, he. <laughs> Winston Churchill hung a a drawing of himself up in Ten Downing Street that Paul had um, drawn or painted for him as well. He was the one that introduced the lead sock tags and how they um, lined up at the beginning of a, you know, and waved to the fans and turned around. But he yeah, came up with yeah. all those ideas. And the most recent thing I've, that I've learned is that he invented the pen grip in golf. Oh, right. So, so he invented God. the he's, he's, he's apparently, he's written quite a few books on golf. Um, but there we go, there's another string to the bow. I'm, I'm sure I've missed it about 20 or 30 times that we've, things that we've discussed in the past, um, Tom. <laughs> Yeah, but yeah, very distinctive uh, artwork. Uh, yes, and just noticing there, not in the Derby County uh, strip, they are sponsored by Maxwell. And um, yeah, obviously yeah. Robert Maxwell, the Derby owner uh, at that time. Mm. Uh, so, and there's a wee sort of uh, diagram there uh, showing how Mick Harford can get his head to a cross in the right wing, uh, and there's a wee sort of question there about what what should he do. Attempt a power header into the top corner, aim a forward header for the back of the net, or head the ball down to hit the ground and bounce into the net. If it, well, if, I can tell you right now, number three is the, the one my dad would always say, and that's what he always said to his header it down, header it down. So I'm going to go for three, Tom. They'll win. Um, number three? I think the answer says McHarford is number three. Yeah, yeah it does. Just just on, on this page, so it's one of the things that we do speak about that the early the early shoot magazine well shoot generally, but the early ones from sixties onwards through to mid to late eighties where they weren't dumbed down or anything like that. You know, they weren't really for young kids, although young kids obviously could could look at the photographs, go through it. But later on, and you can see it here, there are items in here that are specifically aimed towards the younger generation i mean you've got i, th I always a... thought shoot was more aimed at the younger football fan and match was slightly above that but i mean there, there, there's always the sense there was, a, there was an overlap and i think because there's so much in the magazines you it, it, to be honest it's a, bit, a little bit like football programs now you know at clubs mm. you, know, you get the young the, the section in the middle the pull out for the young fans and then there's the sort of historical features, the archive features, but then there is the more up-to-date player profiles mm. or the player interviews, sort of a mix, which is trying to cross the whole spectrum of age because that's what, you know, football fans are. I mean, yeah. you know, you have to, you know, look at the profile of most fans from 10 years old to 85 years old and they all have one thing in common. They all love football, so it doesn't matter you know what you put in the magazines or in programs there'll be something of interest to everybody every age group but you just you know i think shoot what i always just got the impression that shoot was you know probably for the just the slightly younger football fan and match was more the sort of uh older teenager young adult market hmm. all right okay we move over the page then moving over the page so on one side there we've got 
uh, an advert for the computer game football director at last, the real McCoy, football director, £9.99, the most realistic football strategy game you can buy. This is, prob- this is probably what they used for that World Cup special, isn't it? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, it seems to be very much a text uh, a text-based game. But interestingly, I noticed when further down the page where they talk about the, all the various games available, there's Football Director 2 for 1999 oh. available. So odd that they're promoting the, the original uh, Football Director mm. uh, for 999. And if you notice there that they've got uh, a page playing tips for all their games, one pound. <laughs> <laughs> Opposite that, we've got World of Soccer. Italian 90 World Cup countdown, 125 days to go. Uh, and some league roundups there. Uh, Mexican international Hugo Sanchez is in brilliant goal-scoring form for Real Madrid, claiming his 20th goal of the season against Sporting Gion. Uh, and uh, below that, we've got in Italy, Marco Van Basten is the country's leading marksman after registering five goals in two games. In midweek, he scored a hat-trick in the 3-1 win over Atalanta and then followed up with a brace against Udinese. Van Basten's tally now stands at 12. And what else have we got there? It's still a Bucharest played the first match since the Romanian Revolution last one. They played French side Montpellier at the La Mousson Stadium in southern France. Still a run out 2-1 winners. Anything you spotted there, Andy? No, nothing really. Just um, it's a... What, seven, eight thousand pound a goal there for Van Basten. So, you know, that's, that's good return. <laughs> and a bit at the bottom there, we've got bid in balance. So, England are bidding to host the 1996 European Championship finals, but they are to be fiercely challenged by the other home countries. ERA, Scotland, and Wales, and Northern Ireland are launching a joint stake to hold the contest, but they are likely to be opposed by England. However, the decision will have a lot of bearing on the results of the Lord Justice Taylor report on ground safety following the Hillsborough tragedy. And on the joint bid, it is unlikely that UEFA would allow four host countries to automatically qualify for the finals. Another joint effort by Belgium and Holland has also been shelved, with Belgium, who staged the finals in 1972, going alone and making a solo stand for the championships. Um, So, of course, England did win uh, the right to host the 1996 European Championship finals, and Belgium and Holland uh, jointly hosted in 2000. I don't know how that would have worked with uh, Ireland, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland hosting uh, hosting the European Championships. It would maybe work better nowadays because the the number of teams that are in it just keep... Well, I think now as well, travel's so much easier as well, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. I think it make, makes it, you know, the flexibility up until now, COVID, but the flexibility of teams flying everywhere. I mean, when you think about in the English... Premier League, a team will fly. I mean, Newcastle will fly to game in Manchester. Right. It's beggar's belief, really, doesn't it? I mean, you've barely gone up in the air and you're down. So it's just yeah. extraordinary. It's interesting to see that, the, that something's never changed in Spain, Real Madrid and Barcelona at the top of the table. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yep. And uh, Italy, Napoli at the top. Inter Milan, second. Yeah. All right. If we said if we said enough about that, let's mm-hmm. move on. We're heading towards the Newcastle. Team group here, so we've got so not just a, a so normally these things are a double page picture of just the team, but here we've it's not quite not quite like that. We've got three pictures in the page. We've got a Newcastle team group. We've got a 
an action photograph from a Newcastle game at St James's Park, and we've got a picture of Newcastle's captain. Uh, so let's have a wee, uh, a wee look at this. So uh, there's an action shot there, and I think I worked out what game it is. So it's Newcastle v Southampton, and again, as you were seeing earlier on, uh, Nick, it's uh, Mirandinia. I think mm -hmm. shooting for goal, and you yeah. see Paul Gascoigne behind him. So I think it's from Saturday, 26th of September, 87, uh, when Newcastle beat Southampton 2-1. Mirandini and Paul Goddard scored for Newcastle, and Colin Clark scored for Southampton. But yeah, like you were saying, it's a Brazilian import, one of the a few South Americans that were in English football at the time. It was about, just after that, this is just after Ardiles and Ricky Villa come arriving, wasn't it? Yeah, Mirandinia was a sort of in that little vanguard of players that came over. Of course, famously mocked by um, Harry Enfield, wasn't he? In the Julio <laughs> yeah. Giordio. That's right. Uh, so it's St James's Park there, looking full and different. I mean, it's yeah. unrecognisable. You look at St James's Park with the huge Leeses End bank. The Gallowgate end was open. Um, the old stand with the curved. So almost like a mock corrugated iron roof, um, which is all gone now. Obviously, the whole thing has been completely rebuilt. I mean, looking, the, the strip is still one of the, I think, Newcastle fans loved. Obviously, the, the, the strip, the brown ale mm. logo on the front is probably the most famous, most iconic of the strips over the last couple of decades. But this green ore strip was just, I think, is a, one of those that fans always loved. I'm, I'm looking at the team photograph as well. John Anderson there on the back row, third from left, but also interesting, Bobby Saxton is one of the coaches. He's there on the left of the photograph who went on to partner Peter Reid at Sunderland to, you know, the great success they had in the, in the Premier League, um, those few seasons. And Bobby, I knew as a player at Exeter and he took yeah. Exeter to promotion as a player manager and then went on to Plymouth and Blackburn. It was a very, very good, manager in his own right and if you talk to players at clubs that he's managed and coached at they always felt that Bobby was very much the power behind the throne he was the real the guy that for all the sort of um, you know that people sort of laughed at him in the Premier Passions documentary he, he actually could coach um, I'm afraid I think now he's, he's, he's quite ill I think at the minute I think he might even have Alzheimer's he's not in the best of health which is a Real shame he's still living up here. Hmm. Um, and bizarrely, his um, nephew is someone I've worked with at Radio Newcastle who is a dancer on Strictly Come Dancing. Bizarrely, but was on Sunderland's <laughs> books. But um, yeah, um, he, tell, he was telling me that you know, his uncle, obviously, not in the best of health at the minute, but uh, lovely guy, really nice guy. So yeah, if we can pick out a few, a few of the players there in that... Um... And that Newcastle team group, Mickey Quinn, Mick Quinn, and the the back the back row. He's radio pundit these days, isn't he? Right. Yeah. Yep. Goalkeeper Tommy Wright. He's just left St Johnson, the manager. And uh, Tommy Wright. Yeah. Was in goal. If I think I'm, I'm, if memory serves me right, Tommy Wright was in goal for Newcastle the night Rude Hullet dropped Shearer and Ferguson. Mm -hmm. Bizarrely, mm -hmm. and he wasn't because uh, he wasn't first choice. And then Shay Given must have been injured, and I think Steve Harper must have been injured as well because they were the first choice goalkeepers. I think Tommy Wright had been sort of brought in as a third 
keeper, as an emergency keeper, and ended up playing in the, the derby match that saw effectively Rude Hullet sacked. Hmm. Two great keepers you mentioned there, Harper and um, Given. I mean, Newcastle yeah. had, you know, were blessed at that stage then. Well, Harper, who, who basically spent 10 years at Newcastle barely playing a game, mm. you know, turned down the opportunity to to move to, to, to other clubs. Yeah. I mean, he's still involved there now. He, I think he's one of the coaches now with the under-23s. Mm. So he was Newcastle through and through. Yeah. Uh, some remarkable guys that will do that. Still yeah. He's one of the other club. Yeah. And there's uh, a lot of talk well, about Jack Grealish, isn't there, and Aston Villa. Right. For that very reason, you know, he's... he's you know, wants to be a one-club man. Although, yeah. raise it begs the question: if, if Villa were relegated, would he still yeah. want to stay? Yeah, it doesn't happen that often uh, these no. days. People want to stay at the club the whole career. Matt Latizzi is one of the more famous ones, yeah. isn't he? Yeah, yeah. So, a couple of other names to pick out there from that Newcastle team group. We've got Michael O'Neill. Well, it says and now at Dundee United. Yeah, of course. I think he uh, he was there at the same time. Darren Jackson was there. They they two were there together, weren't they? Yeah, I think, I think that's right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we've got Mark McGee sitting in the, the front row there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Mark McGee was at Newcastle early in his career. Uh, he went down I think 1977, early 78. He went down to Newcastle and didn't didn't really achieve much. So um, and obviously he was with Aberdeen, Celtic, Hamburg. And he get a chance to go back, so I think he sort of felt he'd unfinished business by going back to Newcastle. Kevin Dillon as well, Sunderland lad who went on to play for Sunderland, still keeps in touch with Benno. Um, I think he's moved back up here now, Kevin Dillon. Right. How how uh, how is that generally thought of the, the just crossing the divide? Uh, it it's, it depends, I think, on the the players themselves. I mean, nobody. I think I don't think anybody particularly frowns on players for doing it because so many have Mm. Um, where it becomes contentious is things like Lee Clark when he was playing for Sunderland and lifting his shirt up at Wembley with you know the comments about Sunderland fans or whatever it was and um, Michael Chopra when he signed for Sunderland and then blazed over the bar in a derby match at St James's when it was easier to score Um, you, you know others will be you know, the Chris Waddles of this world and so on, never a problem. I mean, Kevin Dillon in that picture, it would never have been a problem with him playing for both Paul Bracewell. You know, players, it's it's all about attitude and, yeah. and you know, how you, what what you give to your team when you're playing for it without sort of um, making issues about it. Mm-hmm. Because it's quite, you know, I mean, it's quite clear that, you know, some players are, or were born in Newcastle and Newcastle through and through, but play for Sunderland fine. As long as you wore, you know, you worked hard and you, you you sort of didn't disgrace yourself in that sense. I don't think people see it necessarily as a big issue. Yes, it's great to bait mm-hmm. players and, about it, but I don't think it's a, it's not contentious in the sense that you should never, ever cross the divide because, mm-hmm. you know, a number of players have done it mm-hmm. and have done it successfully. So uh, I, I think it is all about attitude and, and um, you know, how you how you portray yourself in that position. Yeah, that makes sense. Just going to pick up Paul Sweeney beside Mark McGee. He, he used to be at Wraith Rovers. Um, I think uh, 44 appearances for for Newcastle. He was signed for £100,000. I think he still lives there, so he's oh, obviously yeah. taken it to heart and, you know, fallen in love with the, the club and the, the city. 
Uh, and just a, a couple of wee things to pick out from the, the, the facts that they provide us with. So the ground, uh, St James Park, Newcastle upon Tyne, capacity 37,637. And they've got record attendance 68,386. Three Chelsea, Division 1, September 3, 1930. And record receipts, £135,000 v Watford, FA Cup third round, second replay, January 16, 1989. Something you don't really hear about now is receipts. Would that information even be available, apart from through the, the club accounts, if, if they release them? Think so. Oh, yeah, it's only the yearly accounts, isn't it? Then yeah. that's on the... Yeah. Yeah, it used to be the kind of thing you would see, you would see as uh, attendance and receipts, but sometimes it's hard to even find attendances now for some reason. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and there at the side there, there's a big picture of the uh, Newcastle captain Roy Aitken uh, leading leading his team out of the tunnel. Another hard man at the time. Yeah, and as you breeze over honours, <laughs> <laughs> well, we can we can look at we can look at the honours. No, I wouldn't. Yeah. It's still a, anybody on Tyneside and Wearside honours is a painful, painful road to go down. Well, that's what I was going to say. I mean, the capacity, etc. will be different now, but I don't know how much the honours has changed. Obviously, there's a couple of second division titles uh, that have it's, come along it, since that time. Both Sunderland and Newcastle fans are desperate for some sort of silverware that had some sort of meaningful mm. silverware. It's just extraordinary how neither of them in 50-odd years have been able to, to win any. You know, not, it's not from not being in finals, because they have. I mean, not on a regular basis, but it's a remarkable fact, you know, the Northeast teams just do not seem to be able to, to achieve it when the likes of your Wiggins, Portsmouths, yeah. Birmingham's have all picked up silverware, you know? Yeah. Okay, so at this point, we're going to just jump out the magazine for a few minutes, Nick. Um, we're going to do a focus on yourself. So I'm going to throw some questions at you and if you can just give us the answers back. So here we go. Full name. Full name, Nicholas Simon Barnes. Okay, what's your birthplace? Uh, well, I was actually born in East London, bizarrely. I was born in East London, in the borough of Wanstead, in the county of Essex. Is that your full answer? Yes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what was your first car? Uh, well, first, oh, it was an Austin 1100. Okay. A white Austin 1100. White one, okay. Who's your favourite player of all time? Glenn Hoddle. Okay. Who's your favourite team? Uh, Exeter. What's the most memorable match? Most uh, good question. Um, you see, well, one of the most memorable matches would be the 1973 FA Cup final, which I watched as an 11-year-old, because that had, you know, I think at the time that's such an extraordinary effect on everybody. Hmm. But I mean, in terms of, I mean, if, if I had to pick a match, I it was actually physically at. It was one night Exeter played Newcastle in the FA Cup and beat them 4-0, which was, it was, uh, fan- it was just fantastic. The emotions that night were um, mm. were brilliant. So I'd, I'd pick that one. Excellent. I like that. What's been your biggest thrill? Probably um, being on the Carlisle United team bus going into Wembley, the old Wembley, for their first Wembley final when they played Birmingham City in what was then the Autoglass Trophy, the obviously is the trophy, now the EFL Trophy. Mm. But the crowd that day was 77,000. Uh, I used to travel with a team and the chance to drive up through the big gates at Wembley into the 
but where the dressing room area is, get off the bus with the team and walk out onto the pitch at Wembley was uh, just remarkable, absolutely remarkable. Excellent. What's been your biggest disappointment? Um, I think I think one of the biggest disappointments is the continual, I mean, which is strange when it's this continual failure for um, either Newcastle or Sunderland when I've covered them to win anything. I think so possibly the biggest disappointment was, you know, going to Wembley last year twice, last season twice, and seeing Sunderland lose both finals, one on penalties, and then the other in the very last second of the game. Um, and probably that latter defeat, that playoff final defeat by Charlton, which is a great irony because, of course, it was Charlton that beat them in 1998. But the manner in which they lost the game and the sheer sort of um, how, you know, you get that feeling, the pit of your stomach, that it's just all gone wrong again. Mm. And the drama of losing in the way that they lost, it's probably the worst, worst moment. Mm. What's been the best country you've visited? I think one of the most memorable was um, Bosnia with Sarajevo. We went there with Bobby Robson and Newcastle. It was just um, fascinating, absolutely fascinating place. I mean, beautiful. I mean, uh, the, the parts that weren't bombed out, and mm. it was just extraordinary city and the story that went with it, obviously. Um, but what an amazing place as well. So I think that probably stands out uh, for me. Okay, that's the first time we've had Sarajevo, isn't it, Tom? Yeah. So, what's your favourite food? Favourite food? Um, I think it's probably roast beef, roast potatoes, gravy. Okay. With the trimmings, and Yorkshire good, pudding, good bit of horseradish. Yeah, sounds nice. Miscellaneous lights. So, give me two things that you like doing. Um, I love books, stationery, writing, drawing that side of things. And um, I love railways. Right. Railway enthusiast. Mm -hmm. So there's probably two things that stand out the most. Okay. And on the flip side, a couple of things that you dislike. Um, what do I dislike? I dislike people who don't thank you when you let them pass in the car. <laughs> yeah. On <laughs> small irritant. Um, <laughs> other than that, spiders. I don't like spiders. Okay. I hate spiders actually. This is the worst time of year for them as well. Hmm. What's your favourite TV show of all time? Uh, of all time? Mm, God, good question. I, lo I love detective programmes and dramas like that. Morse, I think Morse would probably be my favourite. Okay. Who's your favourite singers? You can give me two if you want. Two. Um, well, band was, I used to love Dire Straits. love Dire Straits. And um, I grew up listening to 10CC, so those two bands probably... But I mean, there are so many I like. Mm. But those probably be the two I would listen to most growing up. Yeah. Okay, two favourite actors? Um, well, John Thor is one. And another, who's funny enough, has been on this week in the uh, Dennis Nielsen dramas, mm. Jason Watkins. Right. Nice. Who I think is absolutely phenomenal actor. And when he portrayed the guy in Bristol had been Crystal wrongly Jeff. accused of murder. Just, that was just, you know, what a performance that was. Yeah. Mm. Who's your best friend? Uh, my best friend is a guy called Nigel who lives in Exmouth in Devon. We were at college together and we sort of um, always kept in touch. Okay. 
Who's been the biggest influence on you, career or personal? Um, good question. I don't think there's anybody singularly that's had a sort of major influence, but I do sort of respect um, other reporters, commentators, who I think are very, very good at their jobs. And, um, you know, I will listen to them or listen to them in the past. I mean, Peter Jones going back many, many years when I was growing and I'm a great admirer now of John Murray on Five Live. Um, so I think Brian Butler was another one I used to grow up listening to. So guys, cricket, John Arlott um, and those cricket commentators. So I think, you know, there, there, there'll be a variety of influences that should sort of I've leached mm -hmm. from, from all of them okay. rather than one um, specific individual. Yeah. Okay, final question. Which person in, in the world would you most like to meet? You know, that's a good question again. Who would I most like to meet? Gosh. Uh, the, this this one we open up to living or dead. Yeah, I think, right, well, that's probably, yeah. I think I would love to, uh, I think someone like William Shakespeare, because there'd be so many questions I'd want to ask about the plays that he said to have written, the plays that he said not to have written, mm. um, and just what life was like living when he lived, you know, that medieval sort of, uh, just to find out all about that as well as the writing side of it. Mm. So trying to combine this the historical with the literature yeah. as well. Okay, excellent. Some great answers in there. Thank you for that. And back to you, Tom. All right, so just uh, staying with you, Nick, before we go back to the magazine, you mentioned it briefly there, but I was going to ask you a wee bit about the detailed notebooks that you do uh, for each for each game. Can you tell us a wee, a wee bit about them, how you, how you go about them, how long it takes you? Well, yeah, I mean, they, they, that's like a gestation over the years where I started keeping, you know, originally when I was doing commentary, it would just be a scrap of paper with the notes of the game, and then that developed and into a notebook, and then the notebook has gradually sort of morphed into what it is now with, um, you know, I sort of spend a lot of probably four or five, six hours, depending on whether, because I draw the crests as well. Yeah. But, I mean, hope, you know, it's helpful. Once I've drawn a crest, I can photocopy it for the <laughs> next game. Um, so that reduces time. But it's gradually developed into something, you know, I, I, I could take quite a lot of pride in it. And I know people are interested in it. And I think that keeps me yeah. on the ball, if you like. You know, I, I try and keep that. Uh, at the back of my mind that people are actually very interested in looking at them. So they're, they're sort of, it's a, in a way, it's me uh, being able to, um, it's the frustrated artist in me is able to actually use, you know, that in football. So turning art into football, if you like, it's something I, you know, I enjoy painting and I enjoy that side of things as well. And so that it, it's, I've been able to combine the two in my day job, if you like. And um, and they're, you know, they act as an archive for me as well. And, you know, useful things sometimes in match preparation. But I also try and make them as, you know, as, as, uh, as good to look at as I possibly can. Unfortunately, sometimes they get spoiled on match day by the scribbles I put on the page during the game. But then that's part and parcel of it, I suppose. Yeah, they're, they're very detailed. You've got the flags of the, the players' nationalities as well. as, And I think, do, do you do the pitches with the, the, the way the grass is cut? I sometimes do, yeah. I sometimes do if it's a ground, that, you know, which has got a bit of interest to it. But again, again, you see, that's 
that's as much an, an aid memoir, a visual, vis, visual memoir for me in a game. You know, it's very easy in a game just to flick down. And if, if I've drawn a flag beside a player, I can know straight away, you know, the country that their country of origin or whatever. So they're, they're as much an aid for me as they are, you know, that things look nice. But actually, you know, now I've done them over the years. I try, I do try and make them look nice yeah. and they look smart. But they are, you know, essentially, it's a it's a working notebook. It's there to help me to aid me on a match day. And and do you buy specific notebooks and? Yeah, I use. Um, there's a brand called Lecturn. They're German. Um, they're like moleskin, but the big the, the, the big advantage of them is the book I use is slightly bigger than A4. So when you get a team sheet which is A4, it actually fits snugly in the book because um, I always stick the team sheet in there as well. So the, the lectern being slightly bigger than the standard A4 is an entirely practical book to use. And it also the paper they use doesn't bleed if I use ink. Okay. So um, that was another factor in, in, in use. And they're, they're, they're fairly robust as well. I mean, it takes a lot for them to, to fall apart. Did you, was your interest in the types of paper and the quality, was that something you had before or was it simply because this developed probably probably something i had before mm -hmm. but i was very mindful um you know i often write using a fountain pen so i'm often very mindful of paper that you know of what paper ink bleeds through yeah um i mean the quality of paper now is so good i mean both you know notebooks like moleskin and lectern are such good quality notebooks that they generally, you know, you don't have to worry too much about um, ink bleed and the like. But it's something I was interested in before, I think. But that's just become, you know, more, maybe more sort of uh, picky, if you like, when it's come to the notebooks I've used. Hmm. I'd imagine as well the the act of writing things out and drawing things out, because I've done it myself when I've prepped some of these podcasts. If I, if I write it out first and then I'll type it up, it... it helps you soak up the information yeah it does I, I noticed that i mean every week when i'm doing the prep for the game doing that means it does stay it stays with me certainly up until the end of the game on whenever it might be hmm. and then it's you immediately sort of it washes yeah. out i mean there, there, there are obviously teams that you do you get to know players um you know much better than than others i mean it's that the premier league's easier because it's everywhere you you know you it's on television it's it's the league that everybody's got an interest in if you like um and so dan you know now sunderland playing in league one for a few years you know you're learning again i mean i'm, I'm getting in now a, a sort of um a catalog in my mind an encyclopedia in my mind of players i recognize fr from this level mm -hmm. because i'm seeing them more regularly now um but you know in, in doing those notes you're absolutely right when you write things down it, you do, you know, it does seep in and you do remember it at the weekend. And then, you know, as time goes on, the, the more you see these players at this level, you, you do tend to remember them more. But it is, it's a very useful exercise in, you know, doing that before a game rather than just casting your eye across and reading about them without actually physically writing it down. Yeah. No, I, was, I, I read that uh, there was once that you, you got your car broken into. And yes yes they, 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 uh, and they left the, um, the books they stole the i had a, a great big 300 pound coat stolen but the worst thing was my bag was stolen with my matchbook in hmm. miraculously a guy was walking through roker park 
ironically, the actual Roker Park. And he found, he saw the bag lying in, in, in the bushes and out of curiosity looked and the matchbook was in there, my phone number's in the book. Mm. And he phoned me up on the Sunday morning, it happened over a Saturday night, it had been wild night, thick, heavy snow. Yeah. Um, and he phoned me up in the morning and said, I've got your book here, which I was completely bamboozled by. Mm. And I looked out the window and the car was there and it had been broken in on the other side from where I was looking out, so I couldn't see that anything had happened. Yeah. And then he explained what had happened and, and um, just whoever broke in clearly saw value in the coat and they could sell that on, but hadn't realized quite what they had in, in the bag. Yeah. I mean, it, they, it still had my stopwatch in it. It had everything I use on a match day. They'd literally obviously just looked at it and felt there was nothing of value in the bag. And, and, I, and, and luckily as well, bearing in mind the weather wasn't damaged by the, you know, the wet snowy conditions. Mm. So um, I'd now take even more care about where I leave it, yeah. and, um, and uh, it, it was extraordinary escape. To be yeah. honest, I'd, I'd, I'd have been, I'd have been heartbroken if, if I'd lost it. I mean, yeah. I'd, I'd, I'd sort of cherish every notebook I've I've got over the years. Yeah. And there's been a, a season of your your notes published as a book as well. Well, publishers, yeah, they were publishers sort of cards rather than a book. Right. So I've always sort of still my ambition to try and publish one as a book, actually. I mean, I know a number of people have said, you know, they, of, of various clubs said they would buy it because um, they're so interested in it. I would like to do, it's an ambition of mine, I would like to do that, is get one published in book form as they are, you know, as it is, you know, you know sort of facsimile of, of, of the notebook. I just need, in one sense, I just need a season where they win something. <laughs> Otherwise, it's just a litany of failure. <laughs> <laughs> And can I ask you a wee bit, you played a small part in the Netflix series Sunderland Till yeah. I Die. What was the experience of, uh, of the seasons being filmed there at Sunderland? Um, it, it was strange because the, the, the camera crews were there all the time. I mean, you, you, were, you, you got so used to them being around. They just became part of the furniture, if you like. I mean, I did copious numbers of interviews and you know, often as not, um, every game I would either be doing pre-match or post-match interviews with them. And a number of times in the office, you know, you could sometimes you'd be, you know, interviews could take three hours to film. Um, so you just became used to the, to the, and you got to know the crew and the director and the producer so well that they, they were just part of the fabric of the two seasons that they were filming. And there's different director for the second series to the first series and largely different film crews, but the same thing applied each season. You just got to know everybody so well. As I say, that you just didn't, you just carried on. They became part of the routine, if you like, of covering the club for two years. You, you, you just, you just took it in your stride. Yeah, I guess then it was when it actually was aired, and you saw it, it was like, all oh, right, okay, so this is what was actually going on. And maybe it was. Were you expecting it to be what it was? Pretty much, because. You know, in a, in one sense, being on the inside, uh, you, you you knew what was going on. Mm. You know, you had a, a, a good idea of what was happening behind the scenes most of the time. You know, there were some, I mean, certainly the second series, some illuminating episodes like the signing of Will Grigg. Um, but I knew there was a, you know, there was an ongoing saga about the sale of Josh Madger because that was being played out off the record at the time by Jack Ross with myself and a couple of the local reporters. So we knew this sort of Josh Madger um, situation was 
whilst it was ongoing and it, there was a certain you know public face to it we also knew what was going on behind the scenes with it but the will grig episode was quite an eye-opener um i mean just mind-bogglingly really mind-boggling really and why stuart donald ever thought it was the sensible thing to do to to, to go to those extremes to buy will grig um but it made fascinating television yeah mm-hmm. I mean, it's extraordinary television in, in one sense, but also quite embarrassing in lots of other ways. And I think it's very painful for Sunderland fans to watch. Mm. Yeah, and, and then to, to have to sit through the final couple of episodes of the last series where they get when you know they lose the two two games at Wembley um, and the prospect of another season in League One. So it is, it's very chastening. It's very hard, I think, for Sunderland fans to watch it. But I think at the same time, they, I think they accept it was... Um, you know, it was it was well done, and it was, I think, I'd argue, it was sensitively done, uh, both both series, hmm. um, and certainly Sunderland as a as a as a city and a place doesn't come out of it badly. No. And you know, in, certain individuals might do, but I think as a football club and a place, it doesn't. Yeah, I agreed. All right, we jump back into the the magazine just before just before we do, we're just going to mention our charity partner next. So. With the podcast, we team up with a charity partner for each season that we do. And this season, it's the Western Bartonshire Community Food Share. So I'm just going to let everybody know a little bit of what they do. So this charitable organisation provides various services and support to the local community, including the following. School uniform bank, school holiday brunch bags, food provisions, Christmas toy bank, cooking and growing lessons, and a baby bank. They provide essential support to the local community in supporting individuals and families and we will be looking to support them in any way we can through the podcast. This will include drives for donations of food, money and support in the form of volunteers and we will also be raising the awareness of the group to highlight the work that they do but also to ensure that families and individuals who can benefit from the group are actually aware of their services. So you can follow them on the Western Bartonshire Community Food Share group on Facebook or Western Bartonshire Community uk for the website. And also keep an eye on our Twitter accounts at shoottb underscore podcast and at Scott's Footy Cards for updates and news on our charity partner. So one of the things we do with the podcast as well is when we release it, there's also an associated webpage and in the webpage, it will be all the articles and photographs from the magazine that will be on there. And anything else that we talk about that's not in it, we'll link to it. So if there's videos or other photographs, uh, we will link to it on the webpage. And what that will be is, if you're listening to the podcast, you can follow along with the pages as well. And the same way that we're looking at the magazine at the moment. So it just gives a bit more context for people. So through that, we also put a, a donate button on there. And for each pound that people donate, the money will go to the, the charity partner, but it also buys them the equivalent of a virtual raffle ticket. And at the end of each season, we draw the raffle and whoever wins it will get a goodie bag that will include the likes of the original magazine that we're speaking about tonight and we'll throw oh, in yeah. some other goodies as well. So it's just a way of getting people to donate and you know we create this goodie bag and put everything together and as I say all the money will go to the Western Bartonshire Community Food Share as well so as I say please you know check them out follow them on Facebook and Twitter and just keep up to date with what they're doing because it's absolutely essential the the work unfortunately 
you know, it's essential the work that they have to do. So, okay, back to you, Tom. Right. Okay. Let's uh, let's turn and rattle through the second half of the, the magazine. So, uh, on the left, we've here we've got Rendezvous Home Shop. So this seems to be another attempt to sell rugby shirts to football fans because <laughs> uh, they're all rugby style shirts, and uh, you can see there there's I think that Australia British Lions mm. uh, shirts, uh, and there's but there's also there's two Liverpool ones. There's a, a checked, a quartered, red red and white quarter shirt. Uh, They've actually uh, made an effort with this one, though, because we looked yeah, at a previous yeah. one where it was just different colours and you basically had to, you know, come up with you, whatever one suited your club yourself, you come up with that. But this one, that they've got the embroidered badge as well. But what's even more extraordinary is one's called the Elgar, the other's called Mozart, and there's a Strauss <laughs> and a Handel. Which seems completely out of sync with the football magazine. Yeah, the Liverpool one's just called Liverpool. It's, exactly. It's, uh, it looks like cotton traders have got the wrong magazine here. They've they had the, into the wrong magazine. Yeah, it never really took off that, did it? Rugby style shirt for football fans. Never really took off. Yeah. Well, there were there, there, some clubs, didn't they, in the 80s, was it, go for that sort of um, looser collar? And it, that sort of looser shirt, which was the nearest you're ever going to get to, was a retro shirt, wasn't it? I mean, it's like, you know, the, the, the um, Toffs, the foot, you know, the people yeah, that make yeah, them, yeah. which are ironically are based in Newcastle. I mean, they had a huge success, didn't they, in the 80s? Mm-hmm. And, you know, that, that in a way was sort of brought back football clubs looking for that sort of trying to affect that retro look. I, mean, I can't remember which clubs it were, but some even had the. the, the yeah, Tie up. Tie up. Yeah. Man United had that one of the seasons. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. None of this tight-fitting lycra. <laughs> Over there on the right, we've got match facts. Uh, a great pull-out extra every week. And then on the cover, we've got a great picture of Paul McGrath there. Uh, it was a shouting instructions to his fellow defenders, I think. And that same strip that we saw Gordon Cowan's wearing. Uh, Hummel uh, shirt mm. sponsored by Mighty Copiers. Mm-hmm. Quite smart shirt that Aston Villas with the match with the black shorts. Yeah. So let's just ha- have a look at some of the results. Uh and it's Scottish Cup week. Uh this is continued from last week. Scottish Cup January Saturday, January the twentieth. Airdrie two, Inverness Cali two. And so this would this was Inverness Cali before uh Cali and Thistle merged to become Caledonian Thistle. Uh, in, in 94 so Airdrie 2 Inverness Cali 2 which would have been a bit of a shock uh, at the time Inverness being a Highland League club mm-hmm. uh, below that we've got Albion Rovers nil Clydebank 2 uh, so this was uh, the game that set Clydebank off on the run to the Scottish Cup semi-final of 1990 John Davis scoring both goals and uh, from the Clydebank team there uh, Nick you might know uh, Owen Coyle is, oh, uh, yes yeah up front. yeah um, but I don't think anybody. I don't think anybody else there made any kind of impact down down south uh, from the Claybank side. A yeah. uh, couple of other wee results there. Celtic beat Forfar uh, in the Scottish Cup. Forfar opened the scoring in the fourth minute uh, with a curled free kick, and uh, Chris Morris scored with a penalty in the seventh, and uh, uh, Darius Jakinowski scored the winner. A spectacular right foot shot from thirty yards uh, with six minutes to go. The forfar goal was Craig Brewster that scored that. He went on to play for Dundee United and Ionakos or something like that. Yeah, and they played for Spain, Greece. Yeah. yeah. 
Uh, Motherwell beating Clyde 7-0. Rangers beating St. Johnson 3-0. Partick losing 6-2 to Aberdeen. Derek Furhill, two each at half-time. Just on the Motherwell game, um, Burley played that. Would have been George still playing? Or would that have been Craig? Yeah, yeah. No, that'd have been George. That'd have been George Burnley, yeah. Uh, No, on the next page. A soft spot at Queen of the South because I used to cover a few games for them and go Ah, to Dumfries um, a few times with a mate to watch Queen of the South. And also, when I worked at Radio Cumbria, one of the clubs I covered was Gretna. Mm. Um, But of course, Gretna then played in the Northern League Mm. um, and famously, one of the games I covered and commentated on was Gretna's FA Cup tie against Rochdale when Gretna became the first Scottish club in 100 years to play in the English mm. FA Cup but obviously now you know the story of Gretna is well known but mm. uh, yeah. Raydale Park is still there I think the Sunday market is still there mm. it's just a shame it's the, the, the football club ended in the way the way it did yeah yeah it did yeah it rose high and then yeah their wings clipped yeah yeah it's an interesting story uh, Gretna uh, so uh, there's um, Sunday, January 21st, uh, Division 1. So there, there's that result we heard about earlier on. Norwich 2, Manchester United 0. And if you notice, it was such a stunning result, it actually features on the page twice. <laughs> uh, it's, yeah. it's further down there as, as, as well. well. Actually, all the all the, all the the games feature twice on that, on that page. So Division 1, Division 3, Zenith Data Cup, all that. Is repeated later on as well, isn't it? So you've got the Swansea Huddersfield. Yes, yes, they are. Yeah, yeah it's, done, it's like there's a divide down the middle of the page, and they're just mirroring it, aren't they? Mm, yeah. So it's Norwich to Manchester United nil. Uh, attending seventeen thousand three hundred and seventy. Uh, two goals from Robert Fleck in the seventy-sixth minute and the eighty-sixth minute. Uh, Robert Fleck gets a, scores a nine from Gary Pallister's Manchester United's man in the match. Uh, with an eight. Manchester United may be going through a rough patch, but manager Alex Ferguson had no excuses. It was one of those rare occasions when the whole opposition is playing at their peak, he said. After four consecutive defeats, Norwich showed a TV audience that were capable of exceptional football. Among the multitude of chances, Rosario and Fleck hit the woodwork before Fleck made the breakthrough. I think Norwich had been playing really well the the last few seasons, hadn't they? They finished in the... Certainly the... The season that Arsenal pipped Liverpool on the last day of the season, I think they were still in contention up until a few weeks before the end of the season. So, mm. I mean, Norwich were certainly a form team you know, over those few years. There's another standout score for me on that page in the renowned Leyland Daff Cup first round and Shrewsbury nil, Exeter won. Uh-huh. Exeter team, which included a few of my old favourites from down the years Danny Bailey, Darren Robottom, Clive Whitehead, Scott Hiley, who scored man of the match, Brendan or Martin Rogers. There were two Rogers, there were two brothers that played, and I suspect that was Brendan, the younger brother. Anyway, that would mean nothing to that would mean nothing to anybody watching this. <laughs> this. I'm just I'm just getting very wistful, sorry. <laughs> I was just looking at the Shrewsbury team. Um that John Gorman, would it be? Could, and, ooh, could uh, well be Jim Melrose as well maybe so there seems mm, to be Moy- yeah, uh, well, it's David Moyes that's definitely David Moyes because I know he played yes. for Shrewsbury yeah. so there's definitely a few Scots in there which leads, leads me to believe it's McGinley is that is that John McGinley is that a J or is that a T 
that's a seven. <laughs> yeah, it could be John McGinley as well. So it seems as though Shrewsbury had quite a few Scots in there. Gosh. So there's the replay. Uh, Scottish Cup third round replay. Inverness Cali won. Airdrie won. And Inverness won 5 4 on penalties, completing their giant killing. Plus that Coventry 5, Sunderland nil in there as well. Mm. Yeah. Anything else we're picking out from Middlesbrough 1, Newcastle 0? No, it's no great surprise, man. <laughs> I mean, the, the um, Littlewoods Cup fifth round, the, the replay, Tottenham, Nottingham Forest. Did Forest go on to win the Cup that year? Yeah, they might have done, yeah, 1990. 1990, I can't remember. Did they beat Luton? can't remember. Mm. Anything else you've picked out there, Andy, from these uh, results? Not, not from... From those pages, I mean, there's a few Mother, other pages. Motherwell beating Celtic with a Nick Cusack goal. Mm-hmm. Oh, right, yeah. No, I mean, I guess there's, there's, given the time of the year, there's there's quite a few games that have been postponed yeah, as well. Just that Alloa, Hamilton, Wraith mm-hmm. being postponed. Yeah. And there's the Reading 3, Newcastle 3. But also, I mean, I was just looking back on the previous page, mentions Notts County playing in the Zenith Data data systems cup and of course Notts County then would have been first second division team you look at this page here on the right division four Halifax Wrexham mm. two teams now Wrexham playing in the National League Halifax trying to you know they've been reformed haven't they as F- FC Halifax yeah. right yeah um, just shows you know, the decline of a Torquay another team now playing outside the football league number of teams in that on that one page alone that are now playing effectively non-league football and all the talk at the moment about how many teams Macclesfield today yeah, yeah. going to the wall, how many are going to go to the wall in November, December, if, you know, no crowds get back into grounds. Yeah. yeah all right, we move on from the results then, if there's nothing, yep, nothing much left to say. So the next page there, we've got um, Panini stickers, so football where 90. Are where, are my, where are my stickers? <laughs> <laughs> So the picture there, I think, from the FA Cup final, doesn't it? Pat Nevin taking on John Barnes. Pat Nevin of Everton and John Barnes of uh, Liverpool. Uh, Panini's winning team, official league and PFA approved, silvered club badges to collect win trips to the World Cup in Wembley. Brilliant. I don't, I don't have this album, um, so it's one to add to the collection still. I mean, it was a good year for, for Panini stickers as well because obviously you had the, the World Cup uh, album as well that year for early 90 so it was a good year for, for my colleagues still religiously every world cup get the panini album mm. at work they all they're all swapping the stickers to try and fill out the whole album as, as much as you know I, I collect magazines and stickers and cards and all that as well but it's as much as i love all that i tried it with the brazil world cup and i and i've got a couple of sticker albums and i bought a box of stickers and to be honest, I, I think just sitting there on your own, putting them in, sort of loses something. Maybe, maybe you know, if you're there with, with younger kids or something like that, or mm-hmm. friends that are doing it as well, it, it, that's what adds to the, you know, remembering what it used to feel like when you were recollecting these things. So I did actually Google last last World Cup. I think I googled where the Panini factory is, and I felt sort of I looked at it and just thought. All looks a bit soulless. All looks a bit sort of utilitarian, sort of typical Italian. Is it modern? Yeah, I think so. On the on the outskirts of the the town, on the, obviously it's some bland 
industrialist state. It just mm. didn't quite have, conjure up the magic that you get from, yeah. you know, what you imagine Panini to be. It's always just, just it's like they say, never, never interview your, you know, your, your heroes. It's like never, should never have done it. Yeah, no, should never have googled it. Never find out where the cards or stickers come from. <laughs> quite right. So if we look at it, on the right there, we've got a sort of fat cut out and keep sort of guide for fans. So uh, Bournemouth, Gillingham, Huddersfield and Swindon. But if we just look on the next page, we'll just look at Newcastle's then. So we've got Bolton, Newcastle, Reading and Tranmere. So we'll just sort of quickly go through Newcastle's. Um, so Ground St James Park, mascot magpie, capacity 32,995 with 11,413 seats. Uh, and then there's average attendances the last two seasons, 89.90, 20,506, and 88.89, 22,921. Yeah, but look at the price of the tickets. Mm. Yeah, so cost of admission, terrace, £4, adult, £2, child, sorry, adult, four, terrace, £4, adult, £2, child. And stand is six pounds adult and four pounds fifty child. Yeah, remarkable rise in the years since. Mm. Uh, catering prices: pies eighty-five pence, pasties <laughs> seventy-five pence, crisps thirty p, hot drinks forty p, wagon wheels twenty-five p, <laughs> and Mars bars twenty-five. I love that they mention wagon wheels because anybody that talks about wagon wheels nowadays, you know what they're going to say. They weren't as, you know, they're a lot bigger when they were when we were yeah, younger. They were. I think they were, but I think there's people who sort of don't think that that holds true. But I'm sure they were bigger. I'm 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 with you. I'm I'm sure they were they were mm, bigger. Yeah, and they were thicker. I think they were thicker and bigger. Yeah, and also like some the Mars bar there, uh, that that would have been in a. Well, pack. They're definitely smaller. All oh, yeah. those bars are smaller now. Yeah, but the the, the packets are probably the same size. It's just yeah. filled with air, isn't it? Uh, the biggest so, revelation for me, actually, in the last season or two, being in League One, was to discover that at Accrington Stanley, yes, you can buy a pie in the usual offerings, but they also sell pot noodles. <laughs> and it makes honestly it makes life in League One very bearable when you go to get, you know, because the only food you're going to get is whatever's on offer at the club. Yeah, yeah, yeah. get a pot noodle for varieties. Yeah, we sniffed that. Like <laughs> I used to enjoy getting a large thistle here because. They're one of the clubs that do sort of alternative catering and they usually do a, a chilli, uh, really? rice and chilli and uh, oh, cheese, nice. cheese to go over it. Uh, so it's, it's always an experience can, uh, can do in there. Um, programmes, £1, 40 pages. Uh, again, I guess the programme price has gone up quite a bit, mm. quite a bit since. Mm. Uh, arrangements for consulting fans, letters, page and programme and official club newspaper. Player involvement, visits to local schools, etc. Yeah, that that etc. is loaded, isn't it? That's yeah. yeah. What exactly do they do? Yeah, and is In that words, still the kind of thing that goes on? See, at Sunderland, Nick. Do the players... Yeah, they've got a very good. Um, although it's not attached to the club because it's a set, it's a charity, it's a separate organisation, a foundation of light. But the players do get involved a lot. Um, I think there's a. I think actually there's a. And that, that even when they were in the Premier League, there's there was a uh, a rota drawn up, and every week players had to go out to schools, predominantly, but care homes, hospitals, and the like, and get involved in in the community. Uh, in fact, one of the players got an award today for his involvement with the Foundation of Light. So they've they've always maintained a sort of strong link 
with the community, which has been quite important in Sunderland. And so that you know that that has that's been something they they're to be applauded for, really. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's got the uh, Junior Supporters Club, Junior Magpies membership, five pounds for first year, open to boys and girls sixteen years and under. Members receive folder pack, newsletter, coaching courses, and activity days. That sounds as though it would have been right up your street as a as a kid getting all that stationery. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I love that. <laughs> Uh, access to ground, rail station, 10 minutes walk, bus stop at grounds, car park next to grounds. Free match entertainment, bands and occasional junior magpie games against visiting teams. Uh, future plans, general updating of facilities. Well, that, that's just a long way of saying etc, isn't it? It is, although in fairness, they have generally <laughs> yeah, updated the state. Yeah, yeah. Quite, quite generally. Big time, yeah. yeah. Uh, facility. It's taken a long time. Mm. Facilities for disabled, wheelchair enclosure and hospital commentary for blinds. Which is still, in fairness, is still going. They, they do still do the hospital commentary. Mm-hmm. Radio Tyneside. And the community schools involvement, football in the community, regular ground visits and close work with junior magpies, unemployed and the elderly. Well, one of the things which, out of them all, in Newcastle have got one, but nowadays just would not happen as mascots quite a lot of the clubs have saying none 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 on this page alone three out of the four say no mascot and it's it's part of the furniture nowadays isn't it it's, uh, but it's a money earner now isn't yeah. it for clubs yeah. i mean you don't get one mascot i mean like sunderland you can you can on a match day when obviously you've got fans in the ground you you could have as many as 10 or 11 you know who've paid 150 odd pounds you know they get the kit and stuff but it's clearly it's another revenue stream for clubs yeah, now yeah. and the premier league i mean i think some of the prices they charge are quite exorbitant aren't they for match day mascots yeah yeah i think there was something the last year or so which looked at that and it was frightening the, the sort of prices that i think you're talking six seven hundred pounds i think or, mm. or perhaps more well, it might have been i don't know i'm maybe wrong here but everton may have been one of them i'm not sure about that well, I think the other interesting thing looking at the top of the page is that two of those clubs, Newcastle and Reading, have both changed their crests. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Bolton and Tranmere, both their club crest is still exactly the same 30 years on, whatever it is. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Newcastle's crest is clearly very 70s. It's a yeah. very 70s crest. I was going to say that. It's very similar to the Leeds United one of the, the yeah. same period. Yeah. 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 And there was a Ferrari, wasn't there, at Leeds, when they were going to change their crest last year? Yeah. Mm. It's strange, though, but Leeds in particular, if you look back, they've changed their, their crest numerous occasions over their, their history. I well, it, I mean, famously changed the whole strip, didn't they, to the yeah. all-white to, mm-hmm. to match Real Madrid. Yeah. Um, and all that, that big... And then, what, did they introduce the um, sock tabs, you know, the, on, mm-hmm. on, the, on the socks, those little tabs that ran just underneath the top of the, yeah. Yeah. the sock. Yeah, with those, what the, the intention was, and again, as I say, this was Paul Trevelyan's brainchild, that, and then the idea, it was about involving the crowd, so at the end of the game, the players would take the sock tags off and throw them into throw the crowd. Them. It's just brilliant, absolutely great thinking. It worked at the time, I think Leeds, but they were, you know, they, they were the sort of, um, if you like, the iconic club, weren't they, at the beginning mm-hmm. of the 70s, you know, the, they, 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 they sort of the, what they were doing on the pitch and the, the, and their style, if you like. Yeah. If we move on to uh, Brazil, 
So it's, this is um, oh. World Cup Gladiators number five, Brazil. So obviously, as we said earlier, 1990 World Cup year. Uh, so they're looking at um, countries in turn. So we're at um, number five, Brazil. And the big headline here is Tactical Twist. Brazilian samba style is out and sweeper system is in. Brazil hope a change of tactics will hold the key to a record-breaking fourth World Cup crown. The South American giants have turned their back on their freewheeling, instinctive football and introduced a disciplined sweeper defensive system in a bid to lift the trophy. Coach Sebastiano Lazzaroni has added European steel and strength to the traditional Brazilian flair and skill and believes Brazil have a great chance of success with their new system. After a great run of results in 1989 when they won the South American Championship for the first time in 40 years and clinched their place in Italy, Brazil will be among the favourites to relieve the great rivals Argentina of the trophy. I guess that's surprising that they hadn't won the South American Championship in so long. I think there was a, I can't remember which coach it was and whether it was uh, Lazzaroni, but one of the Brazilian coaches, I think it probably is more recent, has said about the Brazilian players, we know what you can do. We know you've got all the fancy skills and you can, you know, flick a ball over your head and volley it past the goalkeeper from 500 yards or whatever, but that's not going to win you football matches. So get back to basics. Stop the stop the sort of uh, the showboating and just get back to playing football. Now, for, to to what degree that's acceptable? Because people, I think, always loved watching Brazil just because they could showboat and yeah. they were so fantastic to watch. Uh, so it says there, and Lazzaroni delighted at Brazil's draw with Scotland, Sweden, and Costa Rica in Group C. Is confident they can make it all the way to the final. I don't wish to underestimate anybody, but I think we will be in the final against Italy. We do have one major disadvantage that other teams in the group know all about us and we know little about them. So it's, we look a wee bit at how they got there. Um, again, sort of they walked it uh, in that um, South American qualifying group three, Brazil, Chile and Venezuela. And uh, they won three and drew one of their games with 4-11 and against one. Uh, start to watch, Brazil's top striker and arguably one of the, one of the best three goal scorers in the world, Careca, has all the attributes to make him an outstanding player at Italia 90. Uh, age 29, he currently plays alongside Brazilian teammate uh, Alameo and Argentinian captain Diego Maradona with UEFA Cup holders and Italian league leaders Napoli, where he moved following a successful spell with Sao Paulo in Brazil. His transfer cost the Italians a cool £3 million. So uh, Careca and uh, have a wee look at their past World Cup form. Three times former winners, Brazil are the greatest World Cup nation of them all. Uh, no one could imagine a finals without the samba style of the magical Brazilians. But in recent times, they've been frustrated by their inconsistency and lack of killer instinct. Uh, and it also uh, looks at uh, the form guide in 1989. Uh, so we pack out a couple of results there. Rest of World 1, Brazil 2 in March 27th. Uh, Al Ali 1, Brazil 3. Uh, um, July the 1st, Brazil 3, Venezuela 1. So no particularly great strong nations are playing against uh, here. No. But uh, beat Argentina 2-0 July the 12th in Rio. And where we go, Brazil 6, Venezuela 0, 
August 20th in Sao Paulo and in Rio, Brazil, 1 Chile 0. Later ruled as 2 0 by FIFA. <laughs> uh, and uh, the beaten, uh, I guess, in friendlies, Italy 1 0 and uh, Holland 1 0. So, yeah, they don't seem to have conceded very many goals over that period in 1989. I wonder what they'd have made of the 7 2 defeat by Germany. Mm-hmm. That, that was something else. And do you know what? I have to admit that at that time I was sort of glad a bit because there was just this arrogance I think from I don't know even if it was from Brazilians but it just seemed there was this whole arrogance about how great Brazil were and they were going to win this and you know to see them you know just absolutely annihilated was, was actually quite refreshing it was you know it probably made my World Cup it's like it made everybody's World Cup yeah. extraordinary. <laughs> I mean, even even before then in 98, you know, the whole final, the whole shenanigans that went on with Ronaldo and everything mm. that happened that day, it's just... Yeah. It's... The thing, I, I, on that World Cup, the Brazil World Cup, I thought it was one of the better ones of the, the recent years as well. I th- you know, I, th- I thought it was one of the more entertaining ones. So. And I think Brazil, Brazil were starting to become, as we were talking about earlier, the, like Holland, they were... They, they, the, the sum of the parts sometimes mm. was their own worst enemy because of the infighting and everything else that was going on. Yeah. And in the end, you know, that's that's what probably un, unfolded in in Paris and then, you know, in that in that uh, semi final. Mm. So looks at the probable squad. Uh, I don't know if I didn't bother looking to see what their actual squad was. I don't know if you did, uh, Andy. No, I not. But uh, looks at the and if you look at most of the most of the players are playing abroad. Uh, the ones that they pick out, a few guys playing in Portugal, um, three players with Benfica, uh, one with Porto, one with Sport in Lisbon, and a few in uh, Italy, Napoli, Torino, Miller with Torino, uh, Moser with Marseille, and you've got Romario, of course, who was with PSV Eindhoven at the time. Uh, and their top goal scorer, Careca, 41 caps, 23 goals, and if Romario had 10 goals and 21, and uh, Bebeto, he was at Vasco da Gama at the time with ten goals and twenty-one caps as well. I wouldn't say I wouldn't say it's a particularly young team. That that squad there. No. There's quite you know, there's quite a lot of past twenty-five, twenty-six. Mid, mid to late twenties and early thirties, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Tafarel and yeah. goal there, twenty-three, age twenty-three at the time with twenty-one caps. Yeah, a few well known names there. There's Dunga there, twenty-six midfield, Fiorentina, fifteen mm. caps. Yeah, a few a few names have been on to play for a couple of World Cups, I think, as well. All right, anything else to say about that Brazil team and and the samba style being out and them going to a, like a three man three man defence with a sweeper? No, I, I don't know if you you're going to touch on the so it's a team photo of Brazil. Are you going to touch on that? Because um, so the the kit maker is called Topper. So this is obviously, I don't know if you've ever heard of the, the topper kit maker, but they're quite big in South America. I think they're Argentinian, but they have their headquarters in Brazil. And they've been about since 1975, no, I think they were founded. But sometimes I'll see something and I'll go off on one. And if you look at you can just see the football. And if I don't know if you can make out what it's, mm-hmm. it's a select. Right. It's called mm-hmm. select. Now, yeah. this is a Danish company. It was set up in 1947 by a former national goalkeeper called Egil Nielsen. 
and he came up with the 32 panel design which was popularised by the, the Telstar ball in 1970 they did the Telstar ball, ball. so he, he was he was this person who was devoted to basically the evolution of the football uh, he he came up with a, a design that removed the the laces from it um, and as I say he, he revolutionised the the, the panels that used to be on it to these pentagons and hexagons type style as well so that was just a, a wee interesting tangent to go off from that as well but what I also like is the, the coach in the end he's, he's holding, I assume that's like a, a a bag for balls but it's one of these string ones and you just you, that that's what you get in a Sunday league your Sunday league team yes, and it's just yeah. you know to see Brazil with that sort of quality of ball bag is quite um it's quite refreshing. Also, I think in that team group in the front rows, one of your favourite things in a team group, Andy. Yep, that's the the pose, isn't it? It's um, it, it could be down in one knee. See, I I quite often see a, a footballer sort of bending down, crouched down, one one hand on the ground and maybe one hand on his own knee. And the thing is, all that's missing for me is there should be a football there, and that's what he's got his hand on. So, so this one is is doing it for me, but he's he's sort of hanging there in midair rather than, you know, sort of kneeling down a bit. So that that takes it away a little. I, I was actually talking about the player who's got his hand on, on his, his teammates' knee. All oh, right, that one. I've, I've got I've got so many things about team photos, haven't I? <laughs> that goes back to there was a Queen Queen's Park photograph, Queen Queen's Park Rangers photograph from years ago, and it was John Gregory and. Um, Simon Stainrod, I think it was, and they were sitting in the front row, and they'd basically crossed their hands over, and they were touching each other's <laughs> knees. But you don't, you don't notice it until you notice it. Stop, yeah, you know. And it was just like, yeah, that that sums up what John Gregory and Simon Stainrod are, are like. So if we have a wee look at the letters page, and then can I just uh, can I just wrap up then? Yep. So it's the match mailbag, uh, and uh, let's pull out a few of the a few of the letters. Uh, that we've got. Uh, as a Spurs fan, I feel that I'm qualified to say that Tottenham Hotspur have become the most impersonal club in Britain. The club seems to have become an unsuccessful business venture, indifferent to the wishes of its fans. The fact that they were one of the few clubs featured which failed to wish their fans a happy Christmas in your magazine of December 9th is but one example of their indifference. The plight of Danny Blanchfleur, however, gives a perfect opportunity for the Spurs management to show its caring face. The skipper of the Great Spurs side has fallen on hard times, and by taking an interest in his predicament, the club itself can restore pride, which is sadly lacking at present to White Hart Lane. And that's a letter by Sean O'Sullivan from County Limerick. And uh, the editor's response is, uh, Danny's present situation does seem to have struck a chord in the soccer world, and there is a benefit currently being planned for him. And uh, Tottenham did play a, t- a testimonial match uh, for Danny Blanchflower in May of uh, uh, 1990, 1st of May, 1990. Uh, And I think he was suffering from, uh, I think it said Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's disease at that time. And then Danny Blanchfleur died in a nursing home, 9th of December, 1993, yeah, he starts off sort of asserting his qualifications for being able to do that, but saying as a Spurs fan, I feel I'm qualified. 
I, I really like the, the letter just above that from Mark Chapman, who we've discussed, Tom, is not that Mark Chapman, unfortunately. But he says, I'm pleased with the way football's been played at the moment. I go regularly to Ayrson Park to see Middlesbrough play, and against Leicester, I was pleased to see Simon Morgan give one of our players the ball from a throw-in after the Borough's keeper had kicked the ball out of play because one of the players was down injured. And so so this is the, them applauding, passing it back and things like that. And for me, it's it's probably the same it's got to an extreme in today's game you know you've got you know kicking it back if if a player goes down injured then he has to kick it out I wish I just wish at this point the answer to this letter had been don't be daft it's going to ruin the game just get on with the game and you know if, if you get a throw in take a throw in and go and try and score because it's one of my bugbears is this whole I mean because quite often you, you'll see it players will Fain injury and go down and it's frustrating well, there was a case in point at the weekend at Sunderland where one of the Bristol Rovers players went down on the touchline and just marginally off the pitch mm. rolled over back onto the pitch <laughs> yeah. two yards yeah but it was farcical yeah it's just this whole unwritten rule now that you've got to give them a back and I, I love I love seeing drop balls contested I Which just is, Exactly. What's the oh. point of a drop ball? You're not going to contest it. Yeah. So, so back to that. This, this is when it should have been nipped in the bud for me. Uh, it's the old argument. Our former players always tell you now it's becoming a non-contact sport. Mm. Uh, right there, there's an, a letter from Geoffrey Sharp of Westcliff on Sea, who says, "I think there should be a third and fourth division England team. They could play against other countries' sides with players picked from their lower divisions." Uh, and then he goes on to list his team picked from. Uh, Southend, Exeter, Tranmere, Notts County. I don't really recognise any of the players' uh, surnames. Um, and uh, the editor says, what an interesting idea. England would have quite a strong team too, with us having the biggest professional league in the world. Mm. Couple, couple of Exeter players in there. Well, I'm glad to see there's two Exeter players in there, but all else, I think, you know, they've, they've done well. <laughs> in fact, you know, Darren Rowbottom and um, Scott Hiley are the two extra players that get in the team. Hmm. Uh, of course, there, there was a, there was a semi, semi-professional semi tournaments that, that were played, uh, hmm. whereas in Scotland, the players would tend to come from the first division, which was the second tier, but the English uh, the, the English team would, would be the kind of, um, I think it's England C. Um, there was largely a non-league team, wasn't yeah. it? Like England C, England B, yeah. but England C was the non-league. Yeah, it was like Blythe Spartans players, yeah. etc. But it was Scottish... League players, I mean, in fact, um, for one example was uh, Robert Connor, who went on to play for, for Scotland. He was he was regularly in the semi-professional team. So, yeah, so that, that there was a, a team like that, but it wasn't, the English side wasn't at that level. Um, when a referee is going to stop blowing the whistle for a foul as soon as a player challenges the goalkeeper for a high ball? <laughs> Goalkeepers are wrapped in cotton wool by the men in black and it's about time it stopped. Uh, an opposing it's player is as much right as a goalkeeper to chance for a high ball. If the keeper happens to drop the ball, then tough. Uh, I think that is something that you see quite a lot uh, these days, certainly on the level of football. I go to see if the goalkeeper's impeded in any way, and uh, the referee's always quite keen to blow the whistle. Well, we talk about extremes, and it's it definitely before my team, time, but obviously we've seen it that it used to be, I think, if the, if the keeper, what was it, if the keeper 
you couldn't challenge the keeper if they were bouncing it or something, was it? Is that the rule? If they were just holding the ball, you could you could challenge them. But I think if they started bouncing it or something, then you couldn't challenge them. Um, but you look at old footage, and as soon as the keeper gets the ball, they have to get rid of it, or else they're going to get flattened. And it's went the other way that yeah, I mean I'm you know I'm I'm goalkeepers union, but I I still think there's they're too too you know too far protected. All right there, um, a wee bit at the bottom there is Britain. Well, the letter of the week uh, by Duncan McGowan of Blackburn. Uh, Britain is fast being left behind by the rest of the world as far as the standards of our stadiums is concerned. The stadiums in countries such as Italy, Spain and West Germany are far ahead of anything we have, apart from Ibrooks and Old Trafford. Most other grounds are falling apart and even Wembley is a great disappointment. And Edward says, I agree, Duncan. I fail to see how we can ever host another World Cup. So I think that's something that's that's changed. Yes, definitely, definitely. I mean, a lot of that was Hillsborough, wasn't it? That, that yeah. forced everybody's hand yeah and i mean i guess it, it changed pretty quickly after this as well i mean I, I don't think the stadiums were too bad for the euro 96 were they was there any no no i don't think so so i guess it was already starting to happen then yeah, all right Any, anybody else spot anything else on the letters page then just that picture of ian ormond droid down the corner picking a sort of villa and bradford legend didn't he yeah, I, th- I think I'd, I was looking at another magazine with him in a six foot five, I think he was. Yeah, oh, he's huge. Yeah, um, very, very tall. Very, very tall. In fact, that one of the, when I was looking, at my, I checked out a, a game against Man United, I think it was, um, Villa Man United, and it, it was up for a corner, and it was him and Gordon Strachan in the same box, and I just thought, he better not be marking him. He better not be marking him. <laughs> I think he does... Um, I think he does some punditry now. I think he works for one of the local radio stations in mm. in Bradford. And there's a wee bit at the bottom there about a guy who's getting rid of all his match yeah, yeah, magazines. I've, Andy, I've made a I've made a note of his address. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> so if we just if we just zoom on, then there's that wee bit about England at Lilith uh, Lilithshall, uh, England top of the fitness league, fitting the bill, and uh, it mentioned. Um, Earlier on, it mentioned that only what twelve um, of the invited thirty-one England players turned up uh, for this meeting, but uh, the ones that were there seem to be having a good time. So there's Paul Gascoigne there with seemingly with his arm in plaster. Mm. Uh, what's what's the feelings about about uh, about Gaza, uh, Nick? Then round. Uh, well, I mean, he certainly in these parts is is loved. I mean, funny enough, I live in. Dunstan, which is where he's from, um, and he's still, you know, people still regard him very, very fondly. I just think, but with a great deal of sadness, you know, because the way his the way his career went, the way things went downhill for him. Um, I mean, to be honest, I, I think people still think it's a miracle he's still alive. Mm. Um, the fact that you know, a few years ago, I think the talk was he didn't have long to live, so mm. you, you could be thankful that. He's, he's sort of come through that, and he's and he's still with us. But um, yeah, I think he's the, I think he's the the sort of son that, that everybody you know wanted to have and loved and everything. But it just and regard him as cuddly but flawed, you know. And just things just didn't work out for him. I mean, undoubtedly, I mean his talent was. Have you talked to John Anderson about Gaza and when he was you know playing with him at Newcastle? His talent was. Yeah, unsurpassed, and he was brilliant. 
absolutely brilliant. I think that what that's probably what makes it so sad, you know, the way his life developed. Yeah, yeah, a smashing, a smashing player. Obviously, we've spoken before about the impact he had in Scottish football uh, as well, because he was—I mean, he was a big, big name coming here. It was a bit of a surprise that Rangers managed to land him, but yeah, he was absolutely outstanding mm. uh, up here, uh, and also he was at his peak when he was playing when he was playing with Rangers as well. Uh, yeah, no, a tremendous, a tremendous player. Yeah, but you just think—you know—you. I mean, I look back at that challenge he made in the FA Cup. Oh yeah, Gary Charles. Exactly. You just think, why? You know, someone of his talent didn't have to do didn't didn't have to do things like that. So it was almost like that was almost like a metaphor for the self-destruct button that he that he has within him. Yeah. Very sad. Yeah. So the articles are England's top of the fitness league. Yeah, so it's uh, preparing for the World Cup. England will chart the World Cup finals, heralded as the fittest group of individuals ever to participate in a competitive tournament. With temperatures soaring into the 90s in the sun-kissed island of Sardinia and the prospect of a month-long programme, fitness will be a crucial factor if England are to make any impact. And yeah, yeah. probably. Well, Sorry. the um, ITV programme recently with Harry Redknapp and the former England players, referring back to... 1990 and everything and, and how unfit they were <laughs> and unprepared they were and how they would just go out <laughs> drinking more than they would go out to the gym yeah mm. interesting but like we but like we said earlier the, the belgium game they won that game in the last minute apparently yeah. i think that was the latest goal ever scored in the world cup final it was the 120th minute david plant scored so it just, just shows you they were still still fighting to win the game in the last minute mm. extra time so maybe there was something there I think there was a there was a team spirit there somewhere. I think that's what saw them through. I think the whole you know you, when you, when you um, when you sort of look back at the semi final and the incident with Paul Gascoigne getting the booking and yeah. Gary Lineker and so on. I think there was very much a, a hierarchy there. No doubt that Gaza was the youngster and Lineker was the elder statesman looking after them. But there clearly was some sort of bond with the team. But it, uh, it was it, in, in some ways it was a flawed team, you know the old penalty situation. Yeah. Whereas the Germans were a machine, you know that was the yeah uh, yeah. yeah yeah. When you watch all those penalties, yeah, I think Shelton goes the right way pretty much every time, but the, just, the ball just gets past them. And then moving on to the last page, we've got Steve Agrizovic uh, of Coventry, again another goalkeeper who's stayed maybe a bit too long. He was at Liverpool. Is understudy Ray Clemens for, for quite a while before moving on and winning the FA Cup with Coventry City. Still that. and still again another player that is a, a pundit now. I think he works covers Coventry games. And there he's and wearing the Coventry away strip, the Coventry away shorts and socks, black and black and yellow. Big man as well when you see him in the flesh. Yeah. Big big presence. Yeah. All right, Andy, that, that has got to the end of the magazine. Yep. So thank you for that. Um, so before we go, Nick, what what's what's happening with yourself? What what are you involved in at the moment? Uh, well, covering Sunderland. So um, we we're just into the season now. Second league game at the weekend coming up at Oxford. Um, I mean, this is very strange, yeah. surreal scenario where we're, we're in stadiums behind closed doors and. It's very odd. It's a very weird feeling, but um, you know, everybody just praying that we get fans back in the, the grounds soon. 
and get some sense of normality because it's at the moment we seem to be in this sort of in between world, this nether world, but sort of in the, a, a bit of a vacuum in a way. Um, and it is very, un, you know, doing uh, interviews being done on Zoom and it's, it's, it's strange, it's all very strange. Yeah. And, and do you really think it will be a critical time for a lot of clubs in, in League One if they don't start? I think it will. I think there, there are a number that obviously are going to struggle because, you know, their revenues are so dependent on fans because they're reliant on match day income through the clubhouse, through the match day sales, through ticket sales. Um, you know, I mean, Sunderland, I think, you know, you can look at a club like Sunderland, Ipswich, Portsmouth, they've got the infrastructure and the fan base to survive it. But some of the smaller clubs, even well-run clubs, I mean, clubs like Rochdale, I think are saying that, you know, that they, they desperately need to get people back um, and, and cash flow again, because that's what's crippling crippling a lot of the lower league teams. Mm. Well, he, fingers crossed that, you know, it does change soon for the for the better. So, here's to that. Listen, thank you. Thank you for joining us tonight. It's been an absolute pleasure. I hope you've yeah, enjoyed it. Pleasure for me. It. Thank you. Um, lastly, we'd like to say a special thanks to Pete Wiley of the Mighty Wah for the use of Story of the Blues and the music for our show. And you can catch up with Pete on petewiley.co.uk where you can check out details of any upcoming gigs and new music and also... Uh, thanks to our producer Diane Jarden for all our great work and you can check out transmissionroom.co.uk where you can book music recording and rehearsal facilities in Clydebank. So again, I'd just like to thank Tom for being Tom. Thanks, Andy. Thank you again, Nick, for, for joining us. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. And, th and thank you to everyone who listens to the podcast. As we always say, please share it amongst your friends, give us some feedback, go to the website, support our charity partner. Until the next time, let's shoot the breeze. <laughs>